the song you're listening to right now is from Sam Shaver, Life, Death, and Duran Duran. This is a Hollywood Fringe show that we saw and we both loved, and we talked about it on the podcast. And we are happy to report that she actually has an encore show from the Hollywood Fringe Festival that you have the opportunity to see. And it is this Friday, July 13th. And if you go to the Hollywood Fringe website, which we will have a link in the show notes, you are able to buy a ticket. We highly recommend it. It's a one-hour show of Sam Shaber reflecting on a fascinating journey through her life and adventures as a singer-songwriter. Trust us, there's lots of feels, and it's well worth checking out. Sam is a guest on this podcast where we interview her and Ashley Steed, who wrote When Skies Are Gray. Another friend's show, which Mike and I both were heavily affected by. So sit back, relax, and get some tissues ready just in case. This is going to be a fun few hours. Hello and welcome to the My Haunt Life podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm Russell. Uh, Russell, we made a couple jokes uh, during Fringe about how heavy this year's Fringe was and how so many of the shows dealt with things like grief and sadness and fun things like that. Yeah, there was a lot going on emotionally at this year's Fringe, that's for sure. Yeah, and it didn't help that we each had our own situations going on. Yes, uh, but two of the shows that we talked about and saw that really affected us, um, one of them was When Skies Are Gray, and the other one was Sam Shaber, Life, Death, and Duran Duran. And we happen to have the creators and stars and amazing people of these shows here to talk with us. So please introduce yourselves. All right. I'm Ashley Steed, and I uh, created and performed and directed and produced uh, When Skies Are Gray, which is about the final week of a mother's life in hospice. And I'm Sam Shaber of Sam Shaber, Life, Death, and Duran Duran. Uh, I co-wrote it with Lynn Ferguson, who also directed it. And uh, it's a show about, it's actually an optimistic show about finding big love in the midst of big loss. Mm -hmm. So it's very sad, but then also quite optimistic, strangely enough. And that's a really good description because in your show, your show caught me by surprise. And I don't want to speak for Russell, but I'm pretty sure it caught him by surprise as well. Yeah, it did. (laughs) Um, Just because we didn't know what to expect. Um, I went into the show because it's like, oh, some just going to tell stories about Duran Duran, probably. Right. <laughs> nice. I'm into it. And then you sit down and it's just like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> but even though like each story makes you, at least it made me sad, I still walked out with a smile, you know, and a lot of that is because of, of you and your storytelling and your outlook. And it's just, it's a wonderful thing. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of a, a relentless optimist, despite everything. And um, so the the show, I think of it as it's only an hour long solo show, but to me, it has four acts in the in the hour, and um, each one focuses on a great loss that I've had. And then weaving them together is this 12 year old Sam who's completely obsessed with Duran Duran and is ready to conquer the world and has no idea what's coming in the future. Um, but the optimism and determination of that kid is still inside me now. So it pulls me through. And, and um, it originated, I was working with Lynn, who is a storytelling um, 
I don't want to say expert. That sounds horrible. She's a storyteller, and she teaches classes, and she's a writer, comedian. She was actually the voice of Mac the Chicken in Chicken Run, the Scottish chicken that's knitting all the time. Right. That's Lynn. Um, yeah, and so she's wonderful. And we sat down. I said, I, I'm gonna, I've been doing all these short storytelling shows, five minutes here in the moth and whatever, and I want to do a full-length piece with music because I'm a musician. And, and she said, well you know, what do you want it to be about? And I sort of brought in scraps of things and a story about my friend Maribel and a story about my dad and a story about Duran Duran. And so she said, well, why don't you go off and record three minutes into your phone on every death that you've had? She said, I'm sensing there's a lot of death here. You've got, it's like you're carrying all these dead people with you everywhere. And so I went home and I recorded 47 stories. What? Wow. wow. And, you know, not all my closest friends, but people that have come in and out of my life. I will say about seven of them were David Bowie, Prince, you know, people that like hugely influenced me and that I had a bit of a line into. Like, I know the keyboard player from the revolution and I worked with one of David Bowie's engineers, but I never was knew any of the big people, mm-hmm. um, but might have if they'd stuck around long <laughs> enough. So I felt like I, you know, lost something myself. And then, but really about 40 of them, there's been a lot of loss in my family, a lot of friends. I lost about five friends to cancer all at mm. the same time, like very in my four, you know, 41, 42 years old. Um, so I came back with all these stories And what Lynn noticed was that I never talked about the death of the person. I talked about the life of the person in each story. And they were included because they died. But the death was not part of the story. And that's what really made her sit up and pay attention. So, So we picked three of them because, you know, when you've lost eight family members, it sort of becomes repetitive after a while. So we focus on my dad. He's the big one, you know. And so that was kind of... And one of them is a story of just completely meaningless, like unjustifiable loss. You know, it doesn't, you can't pull any kind of silver lining out of it. So that was the Mm -hmm. third act. And um, yeah, and that's where, but people come because they think it's going to be about Duran Duran, which it it is. I mean, they can share in the joy of fandom, you know, and we've all, most of us have had that crazy fandom for something or someone or some band or a movie or whatever when we were young. Mm -hmm. So they feel that energy and, you know, I pierced my own ear when I was 13 because John Taylor got his ear pierced and I thought that would bring me closer to him. So it's like made perfect sense to me to spend 45 minutes driving a push pit through my ear in the middle of the night, like listening to Duran Duran on the radio. And that's funny. So it, it does, it balances it out. But, but people are never expecting how deep it goes. Yeah, it's pretty intense. And Ashley, I knew exactly what I was going to get into when I, when I came to, to see your show. And, and I just want to thank you again, because I knew nothing, like we didn't know each other before nope. the show. And I reached out to you because, um, you know, if, if you like, I'm, some of you may have heard the story, but uh, my mom passed away two months ago and dealing with my mom in the hospital and then going to see a show about dealing with your mom in hospice, it, it just, I didn't know, like, I didn't know what to expect. And you were super, super sweet and didn't push me or didn't push me away. Didn't tell me to just, just do it. You let me choose on my own, which, which was awesome. But, um, uh, I didn't leave that show with a smile like I did with Sam's show. No, I'd be really concerned if you did, if anybody left that show with a smile. Um, yeah, that, 
what you said there about like not pushing you to make a decision, but really opening up to you, it's because we all deal with grief in our own way. And I even say that. So there's a section in my show where I offer everybody the opportunity to say goodbye to the mother. And if people don't want to go up to do it, I say, that's fine. We all grieve in our own way. Thank you so much for being here. And it's true. We, I approach grief head on. Um, leading up to my mother's death, I wrote a lot very publicly on my you know, Facebook, um, poetry, thoughts that I was feeling, visits to my mother, because um, it was hard. My, I'm an only child uh, with a single mother, and she was a force in my life and was my biggest fan. She believed in me so much. Um, and she had been declining for about two years. She had uh, cirrhosis of the liver, which she contracted from a blood transfusion mm-hmm. in 1980 uh, uh, after being attacked uh, and left for dead. So there's a lot of, <laughs> a wow. lot of feelings wow. about my mother's mm-hmm. death. Um, and I know that final week of her life, it was Christmas week, and my in-laws were in town visiting from Ireland, and we had driven up to Fresno, where I'm originally from, uh, and would go see her and then like kind of go off to this cabin so I could sort of still have a nice Christmas. But I remember when I first walked into that room. So my piece starts off with these two voicemails from actual nurses who had left me messages on my phone. And it was only when I re-listened to them to create this piece that I heard them. Because I didn't hear them when I first received those voice messages. I was like, because I walked into the room. Mother, are you here? <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's exciting. I'll take that again. <laughs> so I, I walked into the room. And the previous time, she was in a bed. She had a roommate. They had TVs. You know, she wasn't really with it at Thanksgiving, but was with it enough to sort of communicate. So then when I went in at Christmas or just before Christmas, she would, nothing was in the room. There was just a mattress on the floor and two mats on either side. And I didn't even think like, where is everything? I just immediately went to her. Um, and, and that is the piece. I remember thinking, I have never seen death depicted like this. Mm. It's always that like, romantic like we're all around the bedside and we're like we love you mother oh sister oh friend ah like this was horrible as you guys can attest to who saw the mm-hmm. show it was and like and I showed it for real um and, and I so that just sat on the back of my mind and it was actually last year at fringe where I was doing a, this immersive piece where it was like this tent of blankets around us and we share a cup of tea and I was like this is so nice and intimate I think I want to create an intimate experience about the final week of my mother's life so I contacted Melissa Randell who plays mother Um, we had been working on a show together previously um, actually as my mother was dying uh, called Wonder City Um, and even leading up to my mother's death I had this vision of just this dance movement piece to do with Melissa, showing the, the mother taking care of the daughter and evolving to the daughter taking care of the mother. And then when my mom died, you know, that went out my head because I was busy dealing with everything else. And then, you know, then it came back to me. So I, I reached out to Melissa and I was like, would you, you know, want to, I don't know what this piece is yet, 
but would you want to do this with me? And thankfully she said yes. She also lost her father when she was 25. So, mm-hmm. and it's created a solo show about her father's death. So she gets it. So I'm so incredibly lucky to have had her come on board and my entire team come on board to recreate my mother's death and to share that with people. Yeah. That's one of the things when, when I walked out and, and I could actually think for a second, it was like, this wasn't a show. This wasn't a reenactment. And it, it, then that made it even that much worse. And it was like, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but uh, you mentioned the dance piece and Mm -hmm. the, the dance part. I know Russell, you specifically spoke to in one of your reviews. Oh yeah. That, that was the moment I lost it. Mm -hmm. Most people did. That's normally, if they weren't crying already, as I was soon as already. we do, <laughs> but as soon as we do that dance piece, people just open up because then we see the joy of that relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to hold off when you're just watching the hard part and be like, oh, this is, this is hard. Okay. I can keep it together. And then as soon as that energy shifts and you see the joy and the connection between mother and daughter for the first time. It's, so it's a dance, but you do together. Yeah. I wish I'd seen the show. We haven't seen each other's shows. I know, we I know. So we're going to be like fish out of water for each other on this. I I'm know. hoping to remount in February. So. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, that, that moment, I, I think what I got from that moment, and I think it's, it's the, the core of why your show spoke so heavily to me. Um, my mother is dealing with some health issues, you know, um, but um, I have lost my father uh, several years ago. And what that the relationship, the physical relationship as they're moving together as one separately, they come together. What made clear to me in that sequence was what was lost. Because up until that, as as Mike said, it's sort of this experiential thing of glimpses of time of several visits. Um, and you realize that there's a routine forming, which is a horrific routine but I also know that that happened with my father for a while as well. But when you get to that dance sequence, it, you see everything. The blanks are filled in. Mm. That's what I want to say. The blanks were filled in for me of like, oh, this was a close relationship. This was the, because you, you have tension in those moments of when you're figuring out what medication is doing what, what, you know, like what treatment is working, what treatment isn't working. So that was what I got up out of the dance pieces, that's what made it clear what was lost. Mm. And And, that's why I lost it. (laughs) And it's really interesting um, talking about this because it made me realize like in, and Sam, your, your show is a solo show, Mm -hmm. um, but you have audio and video and pictures and stuff like that. And talking about the dance part of Ashley's show and seeing the relationship, you can tell all like the specific relationships you had um, just from the pictures and the stories you were sharing, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's 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 really it's it's really interesting to compare because you can get the same sort of reaction from that as well and it's a hard show to talk about because everybody dies and you don't want to sell it that way (laughs) and i think you know i think part of what hit you guys about it and what hits people is they're not expecting the end, which none of us is ever expecting. Even when the end takes a long time, you, before you get to the beginning of the end, you don't, you're not, we know it's coming someday, but we're not, mm-hmm. especially if it's someone our age, like I had lost a friend on tour. And so it's a hard show to, so a lot of people come thinking it's going to be like a fun thing about Duran Duran. In fact, one of my reviews 
by Anonymous said, this was a bait and switch. It wasn't about Duran Duran at all. This was something else. <laughs> I love that voice. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing their voice. I yeah. don't know who wrote I, that. I'm, I'm sorry. Can I, can I hold up a program it's for just, your yes. show? Yeah, and exactly. What are the life, first two words? Life, death, yes. and Duran Duran. But everyone skips over the death part. I always say they come for the Duran Duran, but they come again for the death. <laughs> it, it sort of became this very, um, and I'm not actually an actor. I am a, you know, I'm a musician primarily, and then I'm a storyteller. So we stayed very far away from me becoming those mm. people. There's a lot of, I saw a lot of solo shows where people flip back and forth and they have conversations with themselves because they're the other character. And a lot of people pull it off. Some people don't. Um, I didn't want to go there. I, there were a bunch of times that we had to kind of pull that back. My, I mean, my dad, my friend Hallie, who's part of the second act, and I'm sure everyone we love, they have very distinctive characteristics. And sometimes their voices are very distinctive. And my dad just had this Alan Alda kind of grainy Jewish voice, you know. And then my friend Hallie had the spaciest, weirdest speech pattern. Like she would double back on herself constantly before she got to the end of a sentence. It would take her forever to get to the end of a sentence. And I wanted to put that in. But there was not really, I can't do it, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm not the actor, so it actually made it stronger mm. to leave it out. And you have to pick, I don't know for your show, but like I had to pick which details I was allowed to share to make it effective. Yeah, I agree, because I know in creating mine, so mine is set over each daily visit. So I have um, like my, my pre-show, uh, prologue, uh, then I have it broken up by each day. And I knew each day was going to be relatively simple because it's just like, all right, what did I do that day? What happened that day? And it's just about that interaction between mother and mm. daughter. Now getting to the final day, which I've called day of the family, you know, I didn't want to then go into now I'm telling a story. So this is what happened. Like my family all showed up and we laughed as we ate pizza. You know, like mm. I didn't want to go from this very kind of, like raw recreating moment after moment to then break into narrative third story. person. You know, do I, do I tell about, you know, how my uncle nearly didn't make it before the 24 hour before, <sighs> you know, we were told 24 hours and we're mm -hmm. like watching the clock waiting for him to get there. And, you know, or me yelling at my grandma or, you know, those family things. Um, and I was like, I don't want to do that. So how do I do it? And then that's how developing, giving everybody, the opportunity to say goodbye mm. is how that happened. Mm -hmm. You know, and we share cookies and tea because, again, I wanted to create this intimate experience. But, yeah, I totally agree with that. Sometimes, you know, uh, because I produce a lot of solo work, you do fall into the, okay, I have to play every character, which sometimes works really great, but sometimes you just want to share the essence of something. Yeah, and, exactly. And let that channel through you. And, like, that was very... Much, you know, mine's a two-hand. I have myself and somebody playing the mother. But I really wanted to to show and for for that relationship to be the, the what it is, not me telling a story about my mom dying. Mm -hmm. How did you arrive at the format that you did? You just explained the show. as far as each, each scene was a day. Mm -hmm. Um how did you reach the decision of you didn't want to tell? It's not really a traditional three-act structure. 
you get glimpses of information and you get the glimpse into the fact that it's Christmas and you get the glimpse into the phone call and you realize that there's visiting family and you hear all of that through quick conversations, but it's not a traditional three act structure in any way. No. How did you reach that format? Yeah. So I knew my main goal was to create this space to share an experience. Um, like I had called it, you know, an immersive experience. And that is really what I was creating that. Mm-hmm. And so I knew that I had to do this dance piece. That was my first initial vision, like as my mother was dying, uh, that I had this vision of. And I knew I wanted that. So Melissa and I actually got together last year in November and just did movement work. She's a lifelong dancer, beautiful dancer, beautiful performer, um, and we've worked together, but I still wanted to build that relationship between us, and so we just did three weeks of movement, mm. and, that, and we built that final movement sequence in those three weeks, mm. um, and then it was Christmas, so it was my first Christmas, at, you know, it was the year anniversary, but I sat down, I looked at like my Google timeline, I looked at text messages, I was listening to, that's when I was gathering everything, and I created a timeline of that week, like the full timeline, because I didn't actually see her every day, because I was trying to spend some time with family, because, I mean, there was nothing I could do, it was, it was clear that she was dying and not responsive, so I had to also give myself some space. So I created a full list of every time we visited, like I had time of when we were there, Mm -hmm. what happened there, like when she bit my thumb, which is in the piece, um, when I called grandma, when I got the voice messages. So that breakdown is pretty much what happened. Mm -hmm. And each day there was a little bit of, you know, that's what happened that day. Um, so like that first day I took her for a walk around in a wheelchair, um, granted my family was also with me singing with me, you know, so the family, as my husband likes to say, um, he was written out of the show. (laughs) He's like, Oh, I guess I wasn't there at all. And I was like, you were there in the waiting room. (laughs) You were there. Um, so it was really the, the structure of it came from recreating those days, um, as, closely as possible um and also making it theatrical as well i'm a theater maker that's what i do um so you know we have these kind of movement sequences in between each day very brief just to show the passage of time um i wanted there to be underscoring of music so this all came with that but in january i would literally show up to rehearsal (laughs) You're like, all right, Melissa, here's today's pages. As I'm like crying. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. it was so hard to sit down and, and then finally write. But even before then, I just did brain dumps of that week. I did a vision of what I saw for the piece. And even as we were um, just, I think we were just opening for Fringe, Melissa was like, so I reread everything and you wrote, like you created what you intended to make. And I was like, yeah, I did. This was my vision all that Mm. long ago. Um, And I I really wanted the people who were there to be like, yep, that's what happened. And then for the people who weren't there to be like, whoa, that's what happened. (laughs) Um, And you, Mike, you were there on the night with my godparents. Yeah. (laughs) You helped me take care of my mother. She had lived with them for a few years and then um, was living on her own. And so they would always go check on her and... 
you know, because I live down here, anytime I would get a call from the nurse or call, you know, before she was even in hospice, they would drive up to check on her. Like, they've been a part of my life uh, since before I was born. And I'm still so shocked that they came down to see it. And I told them, I was like, this is not for you. You do not need to see this piece. You lived uh-huh. it. And like, what a magical experience that night was. It was, I, there are no words to explain. Ex, like describe that performance because I also had other friends who had lost parents at young ages mm. and it was I felt like we were all grieving together it felt like a very communal experience which is very different from the other performances but it felt like a very communal experience with my actual family there um, and Melissa looks a lot like my mother Oh wow! So as soon as my oh. as soon as my godmother came in, she was she was in tears. Oh. <laughs> she was in tears. So it was really it's crazy. And I'm happy to say, as a nurse, I provided tissues. Yes, you <laughs> did. And my godmother told me that too. She was like, "He gave me Kleenex," and I was sobbing. And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, that's my. Here's his story. I can't believe he actually showed up to the show." <laughs> You must be a masochist like myself. Yeah. <laughs> be like, my mom's dead. Let me do the show about my mom's death over and over and over. My mom's dead. Let me go see the show <laughs> about death. I had, um, so the, my first act is my dad. Second is my friend Hallie, who was a camp friend originally. Mm-hmm. Um, third act is my friend Maribel. And the fourth act is, is actually our struggles. My husband, George, and I, our struggles with infertility and mm-hmm. trying to get pregnant and sort of the death of that dream. Um, so Hallie's mother and I, my friend from camp, have become very close, and I always liked her a lot. Even I remember as a kid, I always liked her a lot. And um, I actually did this show at the Edinburgh Festival last summer for the first time, and my mom flew over, my sister flew over. None of them had seen any of this because they live in New York, and I was developing it out here. And Hallie's mom came over. So Hallie's mom oh, and my mom wow. are like blocks from each other in New York, but had never really met so they came over, and they and a friend of my mom's came with her to keep her company. So there were, like, these three ladies in their 70s wandering around Scotland for, like, four days. And Hallie's mom came every night that oh she was goodness. there. She came four nights in a row. And I think it's because it's really a celebration mm-hmm. of Hallie and who she was and what she accomplished before she passed away. And... Um, and it's so funny because I have a I did my freshman year at St. Andrews University, so I was able to stay with friends from college for five weeks, oh, which that's so made good. Edinburgh much more possible because it's so expensive. And um, so my friend Henry came like I think four or five times. He came out of there were twenty five performances, and I think he came like four or five times. And I think the first night he came, he was he's always very chatty with everyone, especially the ladies, especially even the older ladies. So he was in the lobby, like playing host to my mom and, you know, these three ladies from New York. And then he sat next to Hallie's mother and he said, once the show started, he suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm sitting next to Hallie's mother. And he lost it. Like he's, I mean, I didn't see it, but he said he was just like, (laughs) like shaking and sobbing through the whole piece. Meanwhile, Linda, Hallie's mom, was, like, totally, like, she never dropped a tear. She was just, like, stoic. And, like, she's also a writer. She used to write for um, the soap opera Santa Barbara for years. Oh, my gosh. So she's a fantastic bohemian woman who, you know, has lived in the same apartment in New York for, like, 
50 years or something and has all her own quirks and but she just loved it like for her it was a celebration it really was joyous and my poor friend Henry was just like falling apart next to her and then that's a sequence about cancer and the niece of my director was there and she was dealing with cancer in her family and so, and so it's happening right in front of me and sometimes it's, I just have to like tune people out like I had to forget my mother was there because of the stuff about my dad and it w- there were nights that were definitely a challenge. But because I'm not really acting, mm. and it's not immersive, I would never mm. claim that at all, but it is a bit like I'm just telling a story. Like the goal for me on stage is to be completely authentic mm. and like literally what we're doing right now is what I want it to be. Not like, I had a friend and rah, you know, like there's no jazz hands, except the little girl has jazz hands, but nobody else does. <laughs> so there were nights when I broke, there were nights when I broke like crying and, you know, and like it was kind of okay because everybody else was too. And oh yeah, this is what we do when we share these experiences and, you know. Yeah, I definitely had, and that was the, especially when you're sharing something so personal and about death and grief and loss is those moments that take you by surprise <laughs> or when you're sharing it with other people. I don't know if you're able to really see the audience and, and really respond off of them, but I know like my first performance for Fringe, when um, everybody's going to say goodbye, there's one woman, never met her before in my life, and she goes down to say goodbye and she goes, you have an amazing daughter. And I lost it you know and I I would get genuinely authentically emotional Mm -hmm. because I thought how beautiful like that these people are sharing in this experience and all because you know of my mother's death of being able to use her death as a channel to allow people to grieve um or allowing you know for you for your show to to share these stories about these people who have touched you Mm -hmm. uh, and to just sit in that I don't think we allow yeah. ourselves to just sit. It in is our it's grief. very emotional. And I was also, I'm sure for you, from what you're describing, when I was prepping, when we were writing the show, I, I keep, I do keep everything. And I was pulling out, I found audio cassette recordings of me and Hallie reading our diaries into the tape recorder when we were like 12, you know, like oh the Panasonic tape recorder. And I have every photo from the trip with Maribel, my friend that died when I was on tour. Um, which was my very first tour, and we got into a car accident, and she was oh. killed. And so there's a slideshow in, the, in my show as I'm playing the song for that one of this road trip. And at first, we weren't sure if we were even going to use visuals at all. Um, and then Lynn realized, you know what, this slideshow, and it's the, it's, she was like, this is the slide, these are the photos that everyone has like this is the road trip with your friend in college or what are you know whatever trip you go to Europe you go wherever this was this road trip that was my tour that was all out west in America and you know arms over each other like this now we're in the tent now we're holding the car keys to the rental car like all those photos that you have and people see the person they see themselves in the photos because they've been there before and all they can do in that moment is sit through the song and they have to like be in it. They can't, there's nowhere to go. Yeah. And it's amazing <laughs> so how people project onto your own yeah, experiences. Yeah. Like my piece, I don't say at all how my mother died or was dying. Oh. Uh, there's no indication. So people who have experienced hospice or, you know, they, 
they're able to project their own experiences onto it, which I also think is very interesting to watch people's responses to that. Of like, I, I remember during one of my workshops, one of my friends, um, the audience configuration was different for the workshop, so I could see them better. And he was just looking around, looking around, not engaging with what was happening in front of him because he knew that if he did, he, he would lose, lose it, it. <laughs> completely. Yeah. It's intense. And it was intense for me to sit with all that memorabilia for so long. I haven't put it all away again because mm. I was like pulling photos out of albums. Mm. I found my dad lost his leg when he was seven. And I found photos of him before he lost his leg as a little kid, even the year he lost his leg. Like he still has his leg in these photos. But from the date, you know, they used to always print the date like mm. on yeah. old photos because he was born in 1929. So these were old photos. And um, we didn't use those, but it was I, now I know where they are. <laughs> They're back in my life. And it's like, it's really, it brought it all back in a very mm. difficult way. Plus just the energy, stress, and emotion of like getting a show ready for a festival. Oh, yes. You know, in Edinburgh. And then again, the, for this, it's like you're dealing with, you know, contracts and venue insurance. But then also like my dead father, you know, it was like, what is going on? Like I was like, I was, there was a point getting ready for Edinburgh that I was literally vibrating for a couple of days. Like physically, I would lean against the headboard of the bed and ask George, like, is that, is this vibrating? Do you feel vibrating? He's like, no, it's you. I believe it. I, I was so anxious. I had so much anxiety about my piece. I was terrified to share it because it is recreating the last week of a mother's life in hospice. And that is a hard sell. Yeah. Um, at least you can like sort of lead them in with Duran Duran. I know, I trick everybody. <laughs> and you It'll got, be fun. Yeah. yeah. Whereas mine's like, inter death. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, and I was so scared because I was so afraid that people were going to walk out and be like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> what did I just spend an hour doing? And thankfully, thankfully, it has been overwhelmingly positive. But yeah. like, leading up I was so scared and like I probably was vibrating too yeah. you probably were feeling <laughs> me vibrating yeah. exactly. across, across town, town. <laughs> now were you scared and vibrating I guess um because of the personal like the just the personalness of the story or just things like getting the show ready and like those kinds of things because they're both such personal stories and after I saw your shows it like I was wondering like how the hell can you do that like night after night and not lose it you know and I think I wrote I wrote that yeah to you, Sam, I know actually. I well you know for me it's funny the the hardest night for me was the last night of Edinburgh so I had done 25 shows in a row and which is just what people do over there um and I wasn't expecting it but the very last night I was crying through the whole show because it was like I didn't know I'd be doing Hollywood French. Yeah, I didn't know I would ever do it again. I hoped I would, but I didn't know. There was nothing mm-hmm. on the books. And I realized I had been spending every night with these people that I love so much, right? It was like I visited with my dad, with Hallie, with Maribel every single night. And suddenly I wasn't going to be able to do that anymore. And it was sort of like I was losing them all over again. And so I almost every line got me the very my last night at Edinburgh. This year was... Because I was like, oh, I am doing it again. This is great, you know? And I sort of, right before backstage, we, we have an intro. Um, you know, you have to make an announcement, like exits and turn off your cell phones and whatever. And the, the complex, you can do it, maybe everybody. You can do it however you want, mm-hmm. as long as you cover the bases. Mm-hmm. So I actually got an actor to 
um, imitate John Taylor from Duran Duran, and he he says, this is John Taylor, or someone who sounds like him. And so he does this intro, and it's very funny in this British accent. And that is a moment where I'm backstage. It's a bit long, and I'm backstage knowing, like, this is my last breath before I go out there. But it's funny. The voiceover is funny, and people are laughing. And so it helps me a lot because I'm sort of like, okay, yeah, we're going to – I always think, like, we, like me and my three friends that are backstage with me, you know, and then we, we go out there and we do it. And then the fourth act is really about – that's like the lifiest part of the show. So the fourth act is like we're trying to create life, mm. which doesn't work out, but we find joy elsewhere in another kind of life. So it's the fourth act is in some ways the easiest for me because I know, first of all, I know it's coming. Nobody else knows. They're like, when is this gonna, when's the torture going to be over? <laughs> um, and I talk about my husband and, you know, stuff like that. But it's also sort of the most present day experience for me, which is also kind of nice because you do get – you don't get over it, but you get through it, and you land back in your present life at, eventually, um, and that feels refreshing. So, like, there, there's a there's a little Duran Duran piece in between each one, and the ear piercing thing is right before the fourth act, and a couple times I I miss I skipped it because I was thinking of the fourth act itself as the lift at the end of the show, and I forgot that there's like this other piece in the middle that gets us there. Um, so I've literally gone straight past it, like only twice out of all the performances that I've done. But there was, <laughs> Lynn couldn't come to Scotland, so she FaceTimed in a couple times and watched the show. And the first time she FaceTimed in, we like literally just leaned a phone up against the front of the light board and like oh, wow. she just watched the show from at like 8 a.m. back here in L.A. And afterwards I said, do you have any notes for me? Or, you know, she's like, um, you know, maybe... Maybe say all the lines next time, but you know, otherwise, no. Classic I director. Was, yeah, I thought it was pretty great, and I didn't even realize I'd missed it. Like I was so in the zone, I didn't even. Thank God the the tech was like on it for the cues and stuff like that. But it 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 is like, it's it's a joy to share these people with mm. the world, and it's very sad. It's sort of a joy while I'm on stage, and then it flips through my mind, you know, yeah. later at night. You know, and with grief, it's like the the heavier the grief, that means that's how much love there was there right you know that's the love and it's so great that you're sharing the love and yeah. not necessarily just the death yeah. you know um but with the scared thing i've never made anything like this before and i and i've just come to affect like to accept that i never will <laughs> like, i've made my most powerful piece that i will ever make peaking at 31 so that's exciting um but I was... Never say never. Exactly. You never know. Um, but I... It was scary because it is so personal. And I remember telling my husband, that I was like, I have not prepared myself for negative criticism because um, I don't know how I could handle that. I can take criticism easily. And I'm always one of those who wants to improve and wants to make things better. And as primarily a director and producer, like I have a really sharp mind on that. But it, this is different because... I created it. I didn't have an outside director because I couldn't with this piece. Um, you know, and I wrote it myself and I was also performing in it and also producing it, you know, and as an experience, actually as an experienced producer, I was signing all the contracts, doing all that stuff. It was like, fine. That was the easy part. That was the yeah. easy. Take the emotion out of it. That was the easy part. And thankfully we sold out quite quickly. So then I didn't have to go into marketing mode all the time and just kind of relax in the performance. But it's so personal. And again, if people had shown up and been like, what is this? That was shit. 
I mean, it would have destroyed me. It would have destroyed me. But people came out. Like, strangers would hug me. I was crying with people I didn't know mm. and people who are acquaintances and people whom I love dearly. Um, there was one time I was on the ladder taking down the set because you have to set up and strike before and after each performance in Fringe. And I heard this knock on the door. It's a friend of your guys's, Morgan. Mm, um, yeah. <laughs> there was a knock on the door, and I'm like, hello? <laughs> Come in as I'm on a ladder. <laughs> and he just he's like, Hi. <laughs> We're all just standing outside talking about how devastated we are. You're amazing. And he sees Melissa, who's clearly not dying. She is healthy and vibrant and like moving stuff around. And he's like, thank you. I was like, it'll take me 15 minutes to finish up. Like we can grab a beer and we can, we can talk. <laughs> like you clearly need to, to talk about this piece. And it's been so amazing. And people have written such beautiful things and have even emailed me again, people I don't know emailing me these like their own personal stories. So after that first performance, you know, ripping the bandaid off, I was able to relax a bit um, and, you know, got two really strong reviews out the get-go. So that really helped me to have confidence in this piece and what we're doing. So then by the time I got to the end of it, so similar experience with you, my final performance, I leave the room. I never leave the room the whole time until the final goodbye. And I started, I'm holding this teddy bear and I'm sobbing. Mm -hmm. Like, and I'm trying... The audience is silent. I only had two, like, immediate applause after performances. Most of them are stunned into silence, which I also really love. I think that's a great response because they, they're sobbing. And I'm trying not to be loud because I don't want people to hear me sobbing. So I'm like... Mm -hmm. <laughs> and my stage manager, Christina Bryan, who's one of the best stage managers in town, um, just, like, held me. <laughs> She's like, breathe, breathe. It's okay. And I just was sobbing until I heard audience members finally start to get up because they usually sit there for a solid two minutes mm -hmm. in silence. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's well, and exciting. if they heard you crying, they might not know it was over, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it's immersive. So that could be, maybe they're supposed to follow you back there. Follow, they don't know. Follow me and we'll, we'll have a yeah. cuddle and we'll cry. Have a cuddle. But yeah, that, that, that experience of just like, this is the last one. And I, again, on the ladder, another performance is when I was like, it's such a beautiful thing because you know although my show is about death you know what for those who then come see it I say it's actually really about love mm -hmm. um, like it's become somebody has asked me like how do I keep performing this performance after performance of like reliving my mother's death and it's actually become a ritual for me and there's a couple of points in it that I really look forward to and you know it kind of just it's become this beautiful ritual and and Again, giving people this opportunity to say goodbye to somebody that they had loved or they can say goodbye to my mother just to express love and gratitude and to be able to do that through my mother, I think is so amazing. Um, and for somebody who believed in me so much, especially those times in your career where you're like, am I doing enough? Am I making the right thing or am I working with the right people? She would always, you know, talk me off that ledge and tell me, you know, that I'm on the right path. Um, so to be able to make a piece this powerful because of her is 
there's no words to describe it. It's so powerful to me. As I cry in the corner. Yeah. (laughs) Feel free. Mic drop. (laughs) Um, Something that Sam said a few minutes ago. I think the reason that Mike and I are having this conversation with you, your shows are very, very different. And yet what you said really clicked with me a few minutes ago, Sam, of you go in for this hour and you, it, with your show, Ashley, it's an experience. It's, it's a very realistic, fundamental experience of this is what it's like. This is the routine. This is the technique of death. Mm. And wow. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting emotional now. <laughs> so Sam, in your show, you have, yes, you have a lot of death in your show. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not mince words. So, yeah. but you also have this acknowledgement of this is what it is. It's, 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 you know, it's coming or you don't know it's coming. It happens. And then you are stuck with the memorabilia. You are stuck with the memories. You're stuck with the photographs and thank God, you're stuck with them because that's what you will have to remember and relive. So I think the what you said about this is it, you acknowledge it, but it's a reminder that you need to go out and deal with your life in your everyday and move forward. Mm. Yeah. Move well, forward. and also the and the main message of my show, the the last line of the show is. When you lose someone you love, you feel as though you will never recover. But then you realize part of them stays with you forever. Um, Because people aren't just what they make. They're what they make in other people. Mm. So Mm -hmm. really, we have the physical, we have the pictures, we have the memorabilia. But we still have them too. You know, they are part of us. My dad is a visceral part of who I am. My friend Hallie has become a part of me. Maribel is a part of... They've all shaped the way that I see the world, as did Duran Duran, <laughs> which is honestly a real tie-in. I mean, like, oh, yeah. the, you know, it's not, very clear. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the, another death is there's no more 12-year-old Sam. There's In the script, it's young Sam and adult Sam. Like, that's the way it's written. And so, you know, I've, that girl is not here anymore, but she is because she still lives inside of me as well. Like, mm-hmm. the same girl that pierced her ear like a crazy person in 1985 got herself to the Edinburgh Festival with this show and, you know, out of nowhere, basically. Like, I, I actually, a year, almost exactly a year from the day of our final failed pregnancy attempt out of 10, mm. over seven years of IVF stuff, um, I was in Scotland. Like, it was crazy. The, and, I mean, that was like the pit of despair. Like, what am I going to do now? Not because... Actually, my dream in life has been to be a mother. It's actually not really been part of the main goal of my life, but I just assumed it would happen. And then I put it off for long enough that now we're having trouble. And, you know, so when it, and then there were these just seven horrendous years of constantly putting my life on hold because, oh, there's an embryo transfer. Oh, you can't go there because you have to keep your medic. We were in New York for Sandy for the hurricane. We had to keep my medications refrigerated and we lost power. Like it was just like, the insanity that goes on. Like there's so many stories I didn't tell in the show because it's only an hour, but, um, and then we got to the 10th embryo transfer and we were like, okay, this is it. Like we can't keep doing, you know, the doctors will never tell you to stop because they can't figure out what the problem is. And like, you might as well keep trying as far as they're concerned, but the emotional toil, toll, toll and financial and physical and, but really the emotional toll is like 
abuse. It kind of equates to self-abuse. So we had gotten to that 10th one. It was the last one. And we were like, hell or high water, this is it. Uh, if it takes, if it doesn't. And then it failed. And it was just like, like I, when I got off the phone with the doctor that day, I screamed so loudly that I hemorrhaged a vocal cord. I mean, it was Whoa. like intense grief. And then somehow storytelling I, happened. And before, I mean, almost before I knew it, I was flying to Edinburgh to be, to do like my really, like one of my life's dreams. I was at the Edinburgh Festival as a teenager working for a theater company. Never thought I would actually go there with my own show. I mean, it was just amazing, you know? So it was like, again, sort of that crazy 12-year-old girl who became a 15-year-old girl that called up random theater companies and got them to hire her and take her to Scotland <laughs> where she lived with actors that were 30 years old as her roommates and thought that was normal. And then now like went off to the Edinburgh Festival. So it was sort of like all of that. And I had sort of a moment like you were describing with your mother where, because my dad was a screenwriter, and but his real dream was to be a playwright. So he really didn't even care about the screen. I mean, he cared about it enough to do it, and he actually did very well at it, but it never meant as much to him as if he had been in the theater and he had a show off Broadway for a while at the roundabout that had all was plagued with all kinds of problems, and that had been like his dream. He went to Yale Drama School in the 50s. Like he was part of this whole his best friends were the composer of Cabaret and, you know, the guys who produced all the Neil Kander. Simon shows. Yeah, and, you mentioned Kander and Ab. Yeah, and... Kander and Ab. Can, Johnny Kander was an usher in my parents' wedding. Holy I've actually crap, never met him, but he, me. yeah. But I did send him one of my albums one year, and I have, a, I have again, unearthing all these artifacts, I have a letter that he wrote me about how great my music is, and he loved the album, and, and I was like, <gasps> you know, and then I, I've never actually met him. He's still around. I just, Eb, oh, Fred right. Ebb died, but John Kander's still there. Actually, I, like, totally theater nerd moment for me <laughs> is, like, I, I had an opportunity, like, like a... 30 seconds where I was able to shake John Kander's hand. And it was, it was, it was one of those moments where like, I just shook John Kander's hand. I shook, I, I, like, I and, I, and I looked around and like, there was no one near me who got it. There was no one near me who understood what it meant to me. Right. And because I was surrounded by film people who, who didn't don't. quite get it. Right. I mean, he yeah. wrote the song, New York, New York. Mm. Can you imagine a moment in time when there is not a song, New York, New York, like a pre-time yeah. in life that yeah. there's not, like, my dad existed before that song and then knew the guy who wrote that song. I mean, that's, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, he and, actually did music for a television oh, movie that I worked on. So, which one? Uh, breathing Lessons, I believe. Okay. Well, it was funny because I, yeah. so right before the Edinburgh production mounted, I put on Instagram um, the photo of my dad that's one of the photos that's in the show. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, my dad's whole dream in life was to be in the theater. Mm. And tonight, I know, now I'm losing it. Oh, Wrong and I'm man. I was like, tonight he comes back to the theater because he's in the show. He yeah, really absolutely. is in the show. You know, his images are there. And What was the show your dad did with the roundabout? Um, it well, so this was before Roundabout was Broadway. They were off Broadway at the time. They okay. were Union Square, New York, and it's called Bunker Reveries. It's a wonderful show. It's a, it's sort of a reimagining of Nixon, um, trying to climb back up this political ladder. So actually, the, the main character in it is his fall guy 
who's been just like vanquished from the world and is living in a Washington hotel with his girlfriend. And suddenly Nixon's, he's not called Nixon in the show, but he's coming back around. His daughter comes up to announce that he's coming and they want to have a meeting of the minds because he's trying to talk this guy into being his campaign manager. And he thinks he's going to get back in, which apparently Nixon really did plan to remount a campaign after all that. Mm -hmm. And it's a, and and the amazing, one of the best things about it are the women, the women's roles. This girlfriend is like, sharp as attack and she is 50% of the show and then the the daughter is amazing and so um so it was at the roundabout in 1980 I think and um or no maybe a little maybe like 89 or so and uh it was supposed to be Phil Bosco was going to be the lead and Ralph Waite played the Nixon character from the Waltons Ralph Waite was yeah. the dad on the Waltons and um Phil Bosco got sick and they kept pushing. It was a limited run to begin with. They kept having right. to delay it. It was like every problem, you know. And then Ralph Waite took over the lead role but didn't know how to memorize lines because he'd only ever worked in TV. And so <laughs> nobody ever knew where their cues were every night because he was like making it up as he went along. And then there were other and they got bad reviews. It was, just, it was like a heartbreaking experience for my dad and then it almost got mounted again at the Steppenwolf and there was an issue and then Hume Cronin was signed on to do it but that was right when Jessica Tandy got sick and so he had to pull out to take care of her I mean it has had like the most plagued history it's a beautiful it's just a beautiful play very simple it all takes place in a hotel room and you know I was fascinated when your show started and you talked about who your dad was and the projects that he had. And would you please list a couple of the screenplays? <laughs> well, so he wrote The Warriors. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> That's the big gasp each time. Um, he wrote The Hunt for Red October. Yep. He did the production polish. Here's some L.A. talk. So he did yeah. the production polish, which means you get paid a lot. It put me through college all in one fell swoop. But you don't have your name on it because he was like the 13th writer. Yeah. But he's yeah. he's literally 80% or more of that movie is my dad's work and then um he did a film called Nighthawks with Sylvester Stallone oh, sort of a absolutely no Nighthawks no yeah little movie <laughs> the, there the famous kitchen reveal the famous kitchen reveal <laughs> um and that, actually so if you want some insider scoop here yes, for the podcast give it. um Stallone he's supposed to actually look like a woman like he is actually supposed to be in disguise as a woman mm-hmm. and he refused to shave off his beard because he thought he looked good and everyone thought it was absolutely ridiculous that he was wouldn't. But then it actually kind of does where he turns around at the end with the wig and he's got that beard on and then like clearly he's Sylvester Stallone. Okay. Um, and also the shootout on the tram. There's so there's a scene where there's this Roosevelt Island um, tram. Yeah. It's all glass, and uh, which there still is in the world. And there's a shootout with the killer. So all the glass gets shattered and people are hanging by a thread and it's it is very scary. But that was originally set in the Crystal Room at um, Tavern on the Green, which is the scene, if anyone remembers, in Ghostbusters where um, he's running from the beasts as they become loose from the thing and he goes up against the window of these people calmly eating dinner in this glass room. That was a room at Tavern on the Green Um, and that was going to be the shootout. It was like massive amounts of glass going everywhere but they changed it to the tram which was also fine. Oh yeah, works well. Um, So there's a little uh, behind the music for you about um, a somewhat (laughs) obscure cult film called Night Hawks. Yeah, yeah, Mike and I looked at each other and were like, wait, who is this woman? What is going on (laughs) here? I know. I know. It's pretty funny. And and it's funny because my I grew up in New York City. My dad hated LA. I mean, 
despised with any kind of acrimonious mm. feeling you could ever superior you know he was just like everything is horrible here and he would only be out here for like a couple of weeks a year and he would have a bunch of meetings and you know whatever and come back to new york and it's just so funny that i live here now because i mean he would be he died in 99 before i ever moved here and so he'd be like rolling over in his grave <laughs> if he knew i lived here my mom's cool with it but my dad would not but he would come back from la and i remember we'd be like we had a house in Connecticut. We lived in the city, and we'd be driving up for the weekend, and they'd be in the front seat. And the whole way, he would just complain about uh, he would to my mother. He'd be like, "Alice, let me tell you about L.A. Let's talk about valet parking. Okay, this is valet parking. You drive into the restaurant, you get out of your car, you hand the guy twenty bucks. He gets in your car, he parks it five feet from where you're standing, and you go into the restaurant." That's valet parking. Why can't we park our own? Like, he was just everything. The fruit was bad. The bagels were horrible. Like, everything was horrible. I mean, the bagels are horrible. The bagels, yeah, the bagels, are, bagels horrible. are horrible. Absolutely. <laughs> he, he was outraged that nobody ever wore a tie. Like, he would go to meetings with, you know, heads of studios. He and would hate it even more now with people oh, yeah. wearing athleisure wear know, all the time. I know. It was just brutal. So he, so he was never around for me to be here. But now that I live here, it's very funny because I'm not you know I really am primarily a singer-songwriter and recently more a storyteller but I'm not part of a Hollywood crowd really mm -hmm. I mean George my husband is a screenwriter so he's in there now but when people find out like this weird secret pedigree of his wife yeah, it's that's like, very strange and they're fascinated you know and actually the it's funny that the night of my preview so my preview was June 1st for the Hollywood Fringe mm. which you guys were at and then um a friend of mine came with her mother who was visiting and we lived two blocks apart in West Hollywood. So we went back to our places, got unwound and went to dinner and we're sitting there at dinner. And one of the, the biggest movie in my family that my dad ever wrote is this teeny movie called those lips, those eyes, which only got limited re release. You can dig it out somewhere on Amazon. Someone's burned a DVD somehow, which we finally bought a couple of, but this movie like does not exist anymore. It didn't do you know much. And it's autobiographical. So the whole movie is my dad's autobiographical story of growing up in Cleveland. Grandparents wow. want him to go to med school. He refuses. He's sneaky. He's supposed to be in pre-med summer courses because he failed during the year. But instead, he sneaks out at night and he started interning at a summer stock theater in Cleveland. And he fell in love with one of the actresses and like all the. And this is the movie. And so Tom Hulse plays my dad from Amadeus yep. and Tom mm -hmm. Holtz. Um, Jerry Stiller plays my mm. grandfather. Amazing. <laughs> and the actual, like, shining star of this movie is Frank Langella, who, who also, you know, Frost Nixon. Of I mean, course. we all know who that is. Oh, yes. Yeah. But I have those moments where nobody knows who he is, so I feel like I need yeah. to explain. Um, who's actually on The Americans as well. It's oh, very exciting. so good. So he and plays... Because of my age, Dracula. And Dracula, <laughs> and I mean, Death, wasn't he Death Wish too? Did, was that Frank Langella? I don't know. That's maybe Charles I, Bronson maybe I went too far. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, so he's in this movie. It came out in 1980. So he's the Dracula-looking Frank Langella. Yeah. And um, so he is the lead actor of the Summerstock company and he's from New York City his character his name is Harry Crystal and he's from New York City and it's this company that does like light operettas at this Summerstock theater in Cleveland which is like every serious <laughs> actor's nightmare yeah. you know and he is 
an alcoholic, he's bitter, he's angry, he's a charmer, he's with all the chorus girls, he's got attitude. Like, it's the most beautiful layered portrayal of this beautiful layered character. And the whole time it's very waiting for Guffman. Like, there's this agent named Mickey who's going to come. He's coming to Cleveland, he's coming to Cleveland, and he's going to finally sign him. He's sort of hip-pocketed him, but he's going to find Mickey's going to get him back to Broadway. Mickey, Mickey, Mickey. And every night he waits for Mickey, and he waits for Mickey, and finally Mickey shows up, and he so overdoes his performance that night. I'm giving away the spoiler now, but you may never find this movie. That Mickey winds up actually signing the chorus girl and taking her back to New York. Anyway, it's a long story, but he also plays the mentor to my dad's character. And like this kid who's hopeless and useless in theater, because my dad couldn't do tech at all, but that was the job he got. Mm -hmm. So long story short, or long, <laughs> Frank Langella is like a member of our family, but no one, none of us know him. But he's always been this like extreme figurehead in our family. Oh, like we love funny. Frank Langella. So I'm sitting in the restaurant June 1st after the premiere of my show, the preview, talking all about my dad and in walks Frank Langella with two people and I freaked just like you said with Johnny I was shaking I mean you would think Prince like rose from the dead and came and played a concert at Basics on Santa Monica Boulevard absolutely panic-stricken nervous crazed because I knew I had to talk to this person it was literally as if my dad had walked in they're the same age Mm. They both have a theater. They're both theater people. Like they're, you know, and, and it was funny because he always plays sort of villains and like dark characters. Mm-hmm. And I just assumed he would be a jerk, which is dumb because I know enough actors to know that they're <laughs> acting when they're doing that. I was a nervous wreck. And my friend and her mother was like, you have to talk to him. They went inside and we were outside. And I was like, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And finally her mother was like, listen to me. This is what you're going to do. You're going to walk in there. You're going to say, excuse me, Mr. Langella. My name is Sam Shaber. My dad was David Shaber, and you were in one of his movies. And of all the movies he wrote, this one meant the most to our family. And I just, like, she, like, wrote the script. Yep. And they were literally like, three, two, one. And I got up and I went inside. He was the nicest, most normal person. He was totally charmed. He was asking after my dad. But, you know, oh, is he still with us? I said, no, he passed away. And he's like, yes, that movie. It was Cleveland, 1980, Tom Hulse. Like, he remembered the whole thing. And a guy at the table remembered the producer or the director and we were all in this whole big conversation and and I wanted so badly to tell him about my show because I had just come from doing my show but you know it's like you always want to leave the party first so I didn't say anything and then we literally stayed in that restaurant till they left so we saw them again on the way out and I was flying like the next day everyone's like how did your preview go and, and I was like, like what oh, preview yeah whatever I met Frank Langella and everyone's like what are you talking about it was so funny oh so I've sent an invitation through his agent because I have two more shows so you know that's awesome maybe he'll come but it was literally as if my dad had be, like appeared out of nowhere I mean it was just it was bizarre you know, every, amazing. everyone talks about at least they told me like you're gonna see signs you're gonna see signs like of your mom and it's like that is your dad yeah like it was crazy. And, it, and, and that happened, I don't know for your show as well, but like that happened all throughout this experience. Like it was, and I am not open to stuff like that. Like I'll say it right now. I'm an atheist. I am like, a, you know, rocks and, and earth person. Like the first song I wrote after Maribel died is actually a, called Rain, uh, Rain and Sunshine because it's all about like holding on to like solid pieces of reality that I need mm-hmm. and not people being like, I had one woman say, well, God must have needed her up in heaven. And I'm like, she was 24. What can she do? You know, like she doesn't even have a driver's license. What is he going to do with her? 
So it was like, I needed that root, you know, and, um, but Lynn is very open to stuff like that. So it was kind of crazy because as we were working on the pieces of this show, she's burning sage. Like she was like, Maribel's here. She's here. She's paying attention. She likes that. And I was like, whatever, stop it. Um, and with the section on Hallie, she kept feeling, so Hallie had breast cancer and she didn't learn in time because she has dense breasts and they didn't mm. see it on the mammogram, but they didn't tell her to do a secondary screening. So she had that tumor for over a year before she was actually diagnosed and she was stage four and 38 years old, you know, by mm. the time she was diagnosed or 39. And, um, and so the whole time we were working on it, Lynn, who's Scottish, kept saying, oh, my, my knockers, I'm feeling a weird something going on with my knockers, you know. <laughs> she does it better than me. Um, and she, just to see, went for a secondary screening, and sure enough, she had breast cancer. Oh. And never would have known. My goodness. And she's gotten now a double mastectomy and is fully clean and clear. She's had chemo. She is alive and well. And literally, without Hallie, she may never have lived so Hallie has saved a life of someone she's never met before and in fact the the, Hallie's final project in life was to get a law passed requiring doctors to inform patients about dense breasts and it's not unfortunately it's not federal it's statewide so there's not every state that has it but there's many states now where they must tell you that you need more than a mammogram because it won't show and so Hallie is like literally saving lives even after she died and that was just crazy and then when linda came to the show i was able to share that with linda that hallie had done this for lynn and linda was just speechless i mean it was really so we've continued to have these moments when maribel first died the lights kept blinking and the clocks kept going out in my house and stuff like that i was like what is going on i'm like, an atheist maribel. I'm like, no no it's not real the shortage in the electric i know so, i don't know if you had those experiences yeah i I haven't really, um, and it's it's interesting for me. It's more about uh, finding other people who have gone through mm. it, or them finding me. So I'm I'm looking at Mike right now because he <laughs> found me. Um, uh, we're even leading up to it. So I produced this solo festival um, called Solo Creation Festival at Sun Assembly, and I started producing it in 2014, which is when I moved back from London. I lived in London for four years. And thank goodness I moved back because that's actually when my mom's health started to decline. Mm. Like I'd come back in April, her first uh, hospital visit, um, thanks to Obamacare. She got Medicare and Medi-Cal and was finally able to go to the doctor because she couldn't afford it for three years having, you know, cirrhosis of the liver. So, you know, healthcare is important. (gasps) Yes. Uh, My little political message there, healthcare is important. And that visit is what started it all. But that summer... Like, there was a show about uh, a guy losing his mother. It was about his mother's death. And I was, like, crying. And I'm like, why did this happen? Then the next year, there was a show that my friend did, um, Lisa Dring, called Death Play, which is about the death of, like, her grandparents, her parents. Like, everybody in her family died. And she's my age. Um, And it was called Death Play. So I'm like, ah. Uh, And I... I just find myself around these other people who have had similar experiences, which actually has been really helpful because I know um, with Lisa, uh, who who had the show Death Play, she was the only person my age who had experienced such loss. And so we would get together and talk because the hospital visits were becoming more and more and more. Um, and I knew that my mother uh, 
wasn't going to live much longer. And I knew she wasn't going to live to see grandchildren. She thought, you know, she, that was the only thing keeping her alive. Um, but, you know, we were, were not ready to have a baby <laughs> just to, for my mother to meet it. Um, and so it was just these weird conversations that I would have with people being like, oh, oh, this show's come into my life. This person's come into my life. Um, and I think that's really fascinating. It's like when you buy a new car and then you start noticing that car yeah. everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's the same experience. Like as soon as my mother started dying, I started collecting these people. Um, and then when I was creating the piece, you know, finding out some people were like, I'm so sorry. I love you, Ashley. I cannot go to your show. Mm -hmm. And this is people whose mother died 10 years ago, which is why when, when Mike first emailed me, I'm like, that's really soon. <laughs> um... I don't know you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're capable of, but some people lean in, go head on in it, and some people are like, I cannot, it's a trigger, and I don't want to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. Um, but I just think, it, for me, the most interesting thing just in life has been having these interesting conversations about death and grief and love and um, and loss and all these things that, that go with it that so many people don't want to mm -hmm. talk about head on, but I haven't had anything spooky. So, um, one of the things that I was thinking about is all of us at this table, we all have something in common and we all lost a parent. Uh, two of us lost a mom, two of us lost a dad. And speaking of this, like just going back to the signs conversation, Russell, I'll, if you want to share yours, you can, but, um, I had to go back to Boston because uh, that's where everything happened. And what led to my mom um, passing away was my parents had a house fire. Mm. When I was in Boston, a few like the day after she had she had passed away, uh, my roommate texted me in the morning. She's like, "It's so weird. Last night the fire alarms went off," and like, <laughs> yeah, and they're hardwired into the the electrical, so it's not it wasn't like low batteries where you know sometimes they go off. They just went off twice and it sound what she said. And I don't know what time the fire started. Like, I think it was around like 5 a.m. East Coast time. So two or, you know, around our time. It sounded around the same time that the fire had started mm. at my parents' house. So oh my gosh. things like that. And when I'm not, I have two pugs. And when I'm not home, like if I'm on a trip, they'll, they'll sleep with my roommate. That night, they slept in my room. Like, you know, so it was like. You know, I'm I'm kind of a mix between like you two where it's like I want to believe but I kind of don't, but it was like she's there. She's there saying goodbye to the her grandpups, you know, like yeah. like that oh. kind of thing. I want to know what Russell's story is. Um <laughs> nothing I'm interviewing you now. <laughs> Flipping it, the table. More on my mother's side. Um I I lost relatives in Hurricane Camille in 1969 that mm. struck the the Mississippi Gulf Coast. My aunt and uncle um, passed away, and it was a series of events. We had visited them early in the year, and uh, my aunt had had premonitions and had given my mother, th I want you to take this, I want you to take this, and given her gifts. And my mother, uh, my aunt collected dishware and uh, lots of glassware and stuff like that. And m you have to understand that my aunt and uncle were in a piece of property very foolishly on the beach. Mm they passed away in the storm. Uh, when my mother went down to search for the bodies, because like bodies were everywhere, um, everything that my aunt had wanted my mother to have was still on the property. 
like wow. sitting on the foundation. The house had been destroyed, but the everything that my aunt had tried to hand my mother was sitting on the foundation of the house. Wow. And during that time, I've talked to my mother recently because I went back because my mother was very ill recently. And we've talked about family history and um, something that I haven't said very specifically to you, Mike. My mother knows that Mike is a very dear friend of mine. She asks about Mike all the time. And one of the things that she has said about her situation with my aunt was that during the time of how do you deal with insurance after a natural disaster? Mm -hmm. Because there was no paperwork, there was no documentation, all that. And she would say she would always, in the middle of the night, get feelings, oh, I have to call this insurance company. And it was just all intuition, and it was all, and, and she firmly believes that it was my aunt communicating. How do you guess which insurance company to call? Which, yeah. How do you guess all of that? But she, like, she, whenever she needed information, the information would show up in her head. Mm. And, and there were times, like, my, my, my mother did see my aunt a couple of times, you know, just in, in dreams or visions or whatever. But, but yeah, it's something that my mother firmly believes in. I am more cynical than she is. Um, you know, and after my father passed away, uh, I think I was open to it, but I also approached it cynically and I didn't have any kind of that experience with my dad, but I do, I did find myself trying to talk to him at various times. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm, I'm. I, I think I'm somewhere to you is like I'm somewhere in between because I didn't because I remember my mother talking about those experiences a mm -hmm. lot. Uh, my family ended up moving to Mississippi and I was raised there. So my mother has more experience than I do in that area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I, I remember when my mom passed, like I was raised very spiritually and I was like agnostic for a while. And then I'm definitely more on the atheist side, as is my husband. But I told my husband, I was like, you might just see me talking to my mom sometime because I might need to do that. Like we used to, anytime we did a road trip, we would pray that the angels would watch over us. Like, you know, I just, but I actually haven't surprisingly. And I think it's because I, I write about my mom so much. Mm. And a lot of times I'll, I'll do a lot of free form poetry um, and I'll refer to you a lot. So it, you as in mother, mm -hmm. um, you were this, you were this, mm -hmm. you were, you know, battered and abused. She had, she had a very traumatic life. Um, but oddly enough, I used to work for a medium. Oh, wow. Um, and she had a really great saying. She said, um, we die as we lived. Um, and so I've actually written about that too in poetry because I wish that she didn't die so traumatically because she lived a lot of trauma, but I wish she died as she lived with me, mm. which was where the, the joy and the laughter was mm. in my piece. Um, but it's her trauma that ended up killing her the uh, being attacked and the blood transfusion but it's it does make me really think about then how do we live our lives um i lost a dear friend like my childhood best friend when i was 24 and you know when you lose somebody your age at such a young age it makes you think oh shit <laughs> everything matters and so it was one of those that i made at a point if somebody pops into my head i message them wherever I am, mm. whatever, I message them. And that came because... Mentally, you mean? No. Oh. no. Like, like, as in I text them on my phone. <laughs> oh, you mean a, li a live person. <laughs> Not telepathically. Yeah. A living person. Yes. Yes, I, I see A living person. We're back to yeah. reality. Sorry. <laughs> uh, for the dead, I just write really bad poetry. Yeah. That's what I do. But um, that came from... Because when my childhood friend died, uh, he had posted on Facebook... 
uh, something about eating ice and hoping to get home the next week because uh, he was in the hospital, um, hoping to get home the next week for his birthday. And my mom, who adored him, had posted on his wall saying, oh, yeah, I'm hoping to donate because um, he had leukemia and he had a bone marrow transplant. So she's like, I'm hoping, you know, as soon as I move back to California, uh, I'm hoping to be able to donate. And I had the thought of I should write something, too. And then I thought, I'll hold off for his birthday next week. And he died the next day. <gasps> so that is I don't have a lot of regrets in life. It's one of those when you love somebody, you let them know. Mm-hmm. And I always say that the people who are in my life are there because they want to be. Mm-hmm. And so with death, it just makes me appreciate all those people that I have in my life. Um, like even in creating my show, the fact that I got Melissa, she's the only person who could play my mother because she's a lifelong dancer. She looks so much like her. So I knew she would handle the physicality of it and that we, and she's so open and warm. Um, my stage manager, Christina Bryan, who's my work wife, like we, any project I'm working on, I'm like, girl, you're with me. Um, to Dave McKeever, who did music for me. Oh, and it was, wow. I didn't it, know he does music. Yeah. Oh. He, so he composed all the music for oh, me. Awesome. And it was his wife who was like, I, I think Dave might be a good fit for your show. And he's perfect because it's ambient and kind of mechanical and, and eerie, but not. Like, it's all these things. Which, uh, actually, it's funny because that's one of the questions I have on the sheet of paper in front yes. of me is to ask you about the development of... It, I want to say soundscape because yes, it's not really a exactly, soundtrack. Yeah, soundscape. That's a perfect way to describe it. So again, I wanted to create that week as real as possible. But also as a director, I think in terms of music. Um, so the piece that I devised last year um, with Melissa and a group of people it was an ensemble piece all inspired by Los Angeles uh, I love LA. <laughs> um, it's been so good I, to me. So I love yeah. that story about your dad because I love LA and it's been, it's become a home for me. And so we were devising this piece and so much of when I'm like, I don't, I have this vision. I don't know how to make it happen. And then I find the right piece of music and then it just, oh, it just sings to me. I'm not a musician. I wish, I wish I was, but it, I think very much in terms of soundscapes and, and music just gives you everything that you need without saying anything. And that's exactly what I wanted. Um, and so I'd post on Facebook saying, Hey, looking for a music composer that will work for cheap. <laughs> Thanks. It's for my dead mom. Um, you know, I definitely pulled out Put the dead in. mom. Yeah. Car. Play that card. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Hi, I'm sad. Come to my show. <laughs> um, and so Monica, his wife, um, had messaged me. And so I chat. He sent me some of his stuff. He has this instrument called the Shagstaphone, which he created himself. And it is, there's no way for me to properly describe it. But it's this metal thing with like this uh, horizontally with this metal rod up top so he can uh, manipulate it. And then he processes it it through the computer and adds on layers and other things Mm. but the quality of the sound is so mechanical and eerie and weird and strange like you've never heard something like this before um and so i you know told him some of my influences of of like Oliver arnold's is somebody whose work i listen to a lot and like to devise with because there's so many layers and it's fast and then slow and um and, and so different composers like that who just do very interesting things with sound. Uh, and then he sent me some of his stuff, and I was like, this is perfect. Um, and so I just had that chat. I'm like, it's a hospital, and I want it to feel 
I want, I want the music to always be on and always be present, but I don't want it to become a thing in and of itself. And he did this beautiful work. I remember the first time we worked with the music. Because I, I get uncomfortable in silence. <laughs> and so I was adding all these other little tasks. And I actually, so I, I sing a couple of times to my mother because it, it would soothe her. So I sit there with music and I sing to her. Um, and so I actually had more of those bits originally included. Huh. And then when we heard the music, I was like, I don't need to do anything. because it's just us in this action and that feel of the music because it just cuts straight into your soul. And Melissa had said, as we sat there and listened to it for the first time, she goes, I feel like I'm in the mind of somebody who is trapped inside their body, Mm. which is perfect because my mother was, um, uh, was not functioning. She wasn't mentally there anymore. Um, sort of the first day which you see glimpses of in the show but but not like we all know that the end is nigh uh and what a great then gift to give melissa to listen to and then so my show is called when skies are gray and that comes from uh you are my sunshine which Mm -hmm. my mother sang to me my whole life and then i would sing to her at her bedside and i could tell that she was well when when she was able to sing along um, and when I would, uh, there's a thing in the show of like, who loves mom, mom. And it's repeated day after day after day. And I also knew she was okay if she could, uh, say the response. Um, so I also worked with, with Dave on that for the dance piece. Cause we had sort of choreographed it. So then he was able to shape it with us. And I was like, I want you to be able to hear you are my sunshine, but I don't want it to become too much like, we, you are my sunshine. Like I didn't want us to be like bust, especially because you know it has. It usually has more of a country twang to it, and I didn't mm-hmm. want that. Um, and I didn't want an eerie thing either. So that's definitely layered throughout the piece. And then on the Christmas day, it's actually a piece of his that he had sent me to listen to. Um, uh, Silent night that he had done on the. Hmm. So as we were like, what should we use for... Oh, wait, didn't Dave make a piece already for Christmas? (laughs) Let's use that because that's sad and works for this very sad Christmas. (laughs) So it was really organic. Um, And I created this back in January and we did two workshops in February, which was perfect because he's involved in the fringe and I knew I wouldn't see him again. Um, And then my actress is a professor at Glendale Community College. And so the semester started in February for her. I teach at USC. So thank goodness we created everything back in January because if we had to wait till May, Hmm. I would have had a heart attack. Like the pressure to, like even in May, I was getting anxious about not having enough rehearsal time. And then we totally did not need that much rehearsal time because it was already in our bodies. Mm-hmm. We just reshaped our final dance piece, and that was pretty much it. It was, yeah, and then that, that music really just, I'm still so thankful for that because it's perfect. Oh, yeah, it, it adds so much to the show. It really does. Um, I, I have a question also concerning music. You know, you, Sam, have mm-hmm. touched a couple times about you, your singer-songwriter, mm-hmm. which... You seem to differentiate between that and storyteller. 
I don't personally. Yeah, no. I, I was like, I, I, a good singer songwriter is a good storyteller, well, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But how did you end up with the structure of the show? Of because like, it's a it's a wonderful piece where you do visit twelve year old Sam and the adult Sam reflects, and you do have the stories of Duran Duran. How did that take shape? Because your piece, Ashley, is the experiential day to day. It's like you're covering a much broader time scope in your show, Sam. Was that something that you developed on your own? You Obviously, you said that you worked with Lynn? Lynn Ferguson, yeah. Um, She had a lot to do with the structure. So basically, I've... Because you talked about the phone recordings and like... But how did it take shape? Yeah, it was was a very um, slow trial and error process kind of i mean it basically how you many know, years are we talking oh like uh, eight <laughs> months i mean not ah, years okay. and years, and years. Right. no sorry i mean i didn't mean to make it sound that way but um you i know, totally I, expected you to say several years yeah, no, i really i mean did. it took my whole life to write <laughs> no but um <laughs> yeah i mean the first you know if i'm the first duran duran story i'm 10 years old so that's 1982 and mm-hmm. the last yes. thing ends in 2003 16 so yeah that yeah. covers quite a scope um not quite a week kind of a, a me- metaphorical week um yeah i mean i've you know i never set out to i story t- i still don't even know if storytelling what that is is that a career i don't know what that is you know like i've God, spent, I try to make it a career well <laughs> I, I mean you know like and theater clearly is a career but like i'm a storyteller like what is that you sound like the jerk who arrives at the party but um <laughs> I, I, I want to digress for one second yeah i want to hold the train of thought okay. we're going to get back to your structure in a second yes do are any of you on linkedin yes yes have you received the recent like, you know, they do promo stories and all of that. No, I don't really In, I think yeah, it was earlier this week, they sent one out of how, how many years ago nobody listed Storyteller as their skill oh. or talent, and now literally thousands of people are claiming that as oh, a skill. My well, husband would claim they use that word. My husband would claim that. He's yeah. Irish, though. So. Uh, <laughs> because of the marketing aspect of like, oh, right. now no experiential marketing, right, et cetera. Right, right. So, yeah. Own it. So I like, say own it. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. I need to own it. But yeah. it's it's so... I, yeah, you I mean, so need to own it. I, okay, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Russell. Um, so. No, I mean, my sole focus since I was 10, as I say in the show, you know, I was 10 years old, I turned on MTV and there were these five guys on a yacht in Antigua singing Her Name is Rio and she dances on the sand and I was like, I'll be that. So I'd spent my entire life since then, you know, 20, 30 years trying to be that. And more recently, I would say Dave Grohl, not so much Simon okay. LeBond, but you know, it's changed over the years. Um, and then, uh, but what I didn't really pay attention to was that I've been a writer this entire time mm-hmm. too. So even when I was a kid, I was writing my autobiography in my mind. Like as I was on the bus going to school in the morning, I would like observe, I'm very like, I'm a, an observer. Mm. And I'd be like, I'm going to write that down. Well, I got to put that in my autobiography. Like I would remember all these things and I would actually imagine, I had this in the show and I had to get cut for time, but I used to imagine that my, there were little cameras behind my eyeballs and I was actually filming the world for science. <laughs> and so sometimes I'd be on the bus and I'd do like smash cut to the back row, you know, or whatever, like move my eyes around as if I was filming and sort of that someday I, you know, and I assumed I'd be a famous rock star and that's why people would want to read my autobiography. Obviously. Um, things didn't quite go that way, but I've released 12 albums. I mean, I've toured over 200,000 miles. Like being a musician has been my identity for years. Mm-hmm. And what I overlooked was in the leaner moments, I made a living as a writer. I used to write freelance journal articles for really? music magazines and even industrial. I wrote a bunch of articles for 
this industrial gas company, like their internal newsletter. <laughs> but I also wrote for a musician and I wrote for acoustic guitar magazine and performing summer. And then I started more recently, I do like marketing copy, like freelance, mm-hmm. you know, I write websites, I write anything they'll have me write. So, um, in some ways, the writing has actually carried me a lot more than I ever gave it credit for. And I did finally sort of start this autobiography, or we would call it memoir, project a few years ago. And that was why when I came to Lynn, I already had a bunch of stuff written right. that had originally been part of this book that kept sort of expanding and contracting. And I had an agent, and then they weren't sending it out. And so we parted ways. And, you know, that story of the book thing. And, um, and so I went through a bit of a transition, like, two years ago, really, very recently, um, of putting those stories into performance. So basically, I looked up, I was trying to publish pieces of the book, like personal essays, separate. And I have had one published in a literary journal, and then I was, you know, going for it. And I thought, what's that moth thing? Like, I've heard it on NPR. I thought Mm -hmm. it was written pieces that people sort of perform. And I looked up the moth, and it was, sure enough, it's just storytelling. It's all oral. You don't write it down. Mm-hmm. But by the time I did that, I was very interested. And the first one that was coming up in L.A. was a story slam, which they do these competitions for the moth. You tell a five-minute story on a theme, and the theme was obsession. Mm. So I had my Duran Duran. All those Duran Duran pieces used to be part of one story. And I, I was like, well, who knows more about obsession than me? You know, so I put this whole story together and I went off to the moth and I didn't get picked because it's an open mic. You don't always get picked at the moth. And then a friend said, oh, I didn't know you were doing storytelling. I'm going to this thing in Pasadena called Word Now and my friend is in it and you should come check that out. So I went, checked that out. And then at that, I met people who do other storytelling nights and a guy for one that's called Bada Bing Bada Boom, which is an amazing, I just played there. They have a musician also. So last night I was the musician there. Um, I sent him the obsession story because you can just, they don't care what the theme is. They don't have a Mm -hmm. theme. And he's like, oh, this is great. You should come do that. And then in the meantime, I got booked on the Word Now thing. So, and then I met Lynn at the Word, she and I were booked together on my very first storytelling show. And somehow the, like you're saying, music is storytelling, obviously. I just mm-hmm. never thought about it that way. And I was an actor as a kid, and so I'm very comfortable on stage. Like, that's where I am most of the time. And this crossing of these two skills just landed right square in who I am, I think. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really, it's only been a couple of years, and it's very quickly, like, in a way that my music career has never come together. But <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> this suddenly sort of, came together and to the point where two or three times after various story shows people come up to me and they say because it's a whole community you know the storytelling mm, like really that is. world is a community and they came up to me and they were like I'm, please forgive me for asking this but where did you come from because <laughs> I kind of landed there I've got bright pink hair which you can't see through the uh, microphone and I don't look like the other people that, you know, it's a very NPR crowd. Mm-hmm. Like, it's sort of a chill, intellectual, writerly, somewhat older crowd a lot of the time, not always. And I kind of pop in there with, like, crazy pink hair and sequins. And they were like, who are you? What is going on? And why aren't you nervous? We're all nervous. Why are you? <laughs> so it kind of crisscrossed very quickly. And then, um, so that's so that's kind of where it came from. So then, so Lynn and I kind of came together to work on it. And initially, I thought it would be um, a play about my music career. 
and like what it's like to be a musician, which was another whole series of pieces that I'd written for this book, how to get your guitar on an airplane. And here's a bad gig in Baltimore and like all that kind of stuff. (laughs) And I'm so glad that she steered me away from that because I've, (laughs) from going to a lot of fringe shows and the world in general, Mm -hmm. I'm discovering that I'm not as engaged by stories about people being performers like I know that sounds horrible but I saw a lot of shows about people finding their careers in acting that maybe didn't become the career that they wanted it to be which was what my show was going to be it was going to be finding my career in music but it didn't be I'm not Dave Grohl I'm not Simon Bonnet. and instead what came out of working with Lynn and focusing on dead people is the music is really just the foundation of everything. It's not questioned. I'm not proving it. I'm clearly a musician. This is who I am. I'm not sure. talking about when I booked a gig or, you know, a bit in the Maribel story because that was my very first tour and it felt very gratifying to be getting, you know, standing ovation and signing autographs and it was like all my idols, you know, it was very exciting on a small scale in a coffee shop in Laramie, Wyoming, but very exciting. It um, still happens. It still happens. <laughs> but it, we realized that it really was about a human being who could have any job. Because I'm a musician, my songs, which I've been writing my whole life. So some of the songs in the show are two years old and some of them are 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And they all come together in the same show because once we put them in with the stories, like the song I write for my dad, I wrote for my dad. And thankfully, actually, before he died. So he heard that story. So I wrote that in, like, 98. The Maribel stuff I wrote right after the car accident. The song for Hal. You know, so these things have been happening all along the way. Um, And it just kind of went right in like a puzzle piece. It really... We had to pick, like, which songs. Initially, I had more, and we had to cut some of them out, which I think Mm -hmm. is good. Um, And so initially, I... We started working together in about October 2016, and I was struggling. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I came in with a piece about me being afraid of... I had a fire phobia when I was six or seven, and as a whole piece, I got sort of trapped in the bathroom one day at a deli with my parents out in the other room, and I wasn't really trapped, but I was having some six-year-old issues in the bathroom, and um, (laughs) had to deal with something, and I was only terrified because I thought the restaurant was going to catch on fire, and everyone was going to die, and I was, and I I didn't think I was going to die. I thought I was going to be abandoned by the world because they were all going to die in the fire, and so there was a piece about that, and then then I had a piece about the the Duran Duran Obsession story that Mm -hmm. I had done for the shows. And it was, and I suddenly, like, all of a sudden one day, I just brought in this wealth of material, and I had songs, and I had sort of begun a script, and like, act one, and let's talk about death was the beginning, the first line of the show. <laughs> and um, what was so interesting was that it, it was very TED talky. Like, it's a funny world these days with TED talks, because yes. especially with a one person show, you can easily fall into really what could just be a TED Talk. And you have to kind of, and TED Talks are wonderful, but they're not theater. And you have to figure out why a TED Talk is a TED Talk and why a play is a play. And we had a lot of conversations about that, especially with immersive, I'm sure you have to find that. And so I had this very presentational, like, let's talk about death. Let's talk about touring. Let's talk about... And she was like, no, (laughs) like I'm putting the kibosh on that right away. And so she took, she said, you know, this Duran Duran stuff is so rich, but it's so unmatched to everything else. I think this is a motif. This is not 
a chunk. We need to weave these stories through. And so I have even more, of course, I have endless stories about Duran Duran, but we picked the ones that we kind of put them chronologically and we, we picked them to sort of, you know, the, the ear piercing comes after a lot of the Maribel stories about her eyes. So we go from eyes to ears. It's about suffering through pain a little bit at a time so you can handle it. Mm. And like, that's Mm. what life can be. You know, that's what death can be. That's what grief can be. And so that's why that story went there. And then there's um, a story about me spending a whole summer babysitting to save up money to spend it all on buying a jacket for John Taylor for his birthday. Very proud of that moment (laughs) and um you know and that's about perseverance and that's about having a goal and that comes before the Hallie story you know so it's it's Mm -hmm. they come in to where they they kind of fell where they needed to fall Mm -hmm. um and then the end of the show we come back to a fifth Duran Duran story called the coda we call it the coda in the script because I'm old I'm a bit older I'm 16 at the end and um we went back and forth about whether to include it because we weren't quite sure what it was telling us, but we somehow felt that we needed it. Like we needed to remember that the little Sam is okay. Like that the young Mm -hmm. Sam is okay. Um, And so basically it's a story about finally actually seeing Duran Duran in concert, which didn't happen until I was 16. And, but being more excited because I had a guy tried to steal my sweater. I'd taken Mm -hmm. off my sweater because it was hot and this kid tried to steal it. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And we got into a big tug of war. My sweater got ruined. It got pulled out of shape. And it turned out he thought it was John Taylor's sweater that had been thrown into the audience. And he was fighting for his life to get John Taylor's sweater. And what was so amazing about it was, forget the concert. Someone thought my sweater was as cool as John Taylor, which meant I was as cool as John Taylor. And it was like this life-affirming moment of like, yes, I really will be a rock star. Like, I'm as cool as Duran Duran. I can do this. And, and we just thought this is... And yet, we, then we sort of kept the sweater as another death. Like, I lost my coolest sweater, but through it, I became a rock star. So mm-hmm. it kind of became a part of me. And, and so that is that final moment in the in the show where you say, you know, they, they become a part of you forever. And mm. that's true about life and death. So as far as it's funny, cause I don't really deal with grief in the show. Like mm. as soon as someone dies, it's that part is over and we move on to the next thing. It would be interesting even to do a second version of this, like a sequel. That's actually the grieving parts because it's all fine and good to say your dad died 20 years ago and you're good now and he's in you and it's great. But like when it first happens, you do not feel quite when, that way. And, like, and grief like hits you in very different ways. I don't know. I really love this idea that even when, when Lynn first told you to go away to, to just talk into your iPhone and record things, that they were all stories about their lives and not their death. Yeah. And like that's something that I was grappling with with mine because it is about my mother's death. Mm. And, and when I was writing it, I was reliving that. And then, of course, I was reliving her trauma. And then I was like, I'm going to write a play about her trauma because I just mm. read this adrian kennedy play called funny house of a negro which is if you don't know adrian kennedy's work it is trump like trauma on stage oh. and it is so visceral and beautiful and poetic and i responded so viscerally to this to this play that which was done in like the 60s i think and um i was like yes i want to write like that so as i was creating this show I was then also writing about my mother's trauma 
But something that happens when she, as she was dying and, and, and when she died is you have like this magical thinking where you think you can go back in time and stop it from happening. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot about those three years where she didn't have health insurance and couldn't go to a doctor. You know, I think about what if I had a time machine, I'd go back to 1980 and prevent her from being attacked. Like, you know, these weird things. So I was incorporating that into this play of like me, like trying to alter my mother's life and then I was like I'm just writing about trauma and trauma and trauma and then I was like researching her attacker Mm. and I I mean I went crazy and then I was like stop you're writing about her death your her trauma is already part of your DNA and it's what has made her and yourself so vibrant and strong and resilient so let's do some different writing exercises <laughs> and write about the joy and laughter. And so the end of my show, um, before I invite everybody to say goodbye, I do a toast to joy and laughter. And that actually came from when I was cleaning out her apartment. This was at Thanksgiving time before she died. I had to empty out her apartment because she was now in hospice. Um, so why pay rent when mm-hmm. nobody's going to be coming back? And actually, I'm so thankful that I got rid of everything before she died. Because then after she died, I would have been like, this jumper she wore once, this blazer that she loved. Instead, I just like sold it all, got, got rid of it all. <laughs> so I was <laughs> emptying out her apartment. And I was looking through this box of like old baby stuff. And my mom had like an old baby book that had sort of started to be filled out, but never finished, right? And I'm mm-hmm. looking through and there's this page that says joy and laughter on it. That's in print on there. And she had written in, I have never felt this kind or this amount of and pointed to it. And I was like, that's how I remember my mom. Like, you know, she was very open with me about her trauma. She was abused and she was raped and she was left for dead. And she had a boyfriend break her jaw. She had an abuse, like any kind of abuse, emotional, sexual, physical, she experienced it and was on a path towards you know, destroying herself before she had me. Um, And then she had me and had this joy and laughter in her life. And that's how I remember her. Um, And that's what I, you know, that's also my coda. My epilogue is that dance, is that moment. Because yes, the grieving and the death is hard and it all affects us differently. But also how wonderful to then be able to remember and share Mm -hmm those amazing experiences that you had with those people who have profoundly shaped you. Yeah. So much so, so much so that you're doing a show. Yeah. <laughs> about it. Yeah. And that you've written songs about it. Like that must be really healing for, I have found writing for me has been so healing. Mm-hmm. And I like, I dabbled in poetry when I was younger and songwriting when I was younger. And it's just with my mother that it just flows out of me. Like you can't stop the words coming mm-hmm. out and what a gift to be able to use that to try to make sense of the craziness that's going on. And it's on. also something you can share. Yes. So you can, and it, what's funny is, you know, I'm so much more comfortable, increasingly less so, but I'm so much more comfortable doing the songs than doing the storytelling. Cause mm-hmm. that's like the songs I can do in my sleep. I've been doing them for a billion years and I like, I can just do that. So Often in the show, I'm in a difficult moment in the storytelling, and in my mind, I'm like, if I can just get to the song, I'll be fine. And what I think is funny is, like, I can get to the song, and I have little techniques 
that I've developed over the years to not cry in my own songs because you can't cry and sing at the same time. Like my goal is always not goal, but like it, you know, audience cry, good. Performer cry, bad. You can talk and cry a bit, but you cannot sing and cry. So once I get to the song, I'm not checked out, but I'm in my safe place. Like this is where I know myself. Mm -hmm. And what I think is funny is I think the audience, that's their emotional, I mean, I would ask you guys, I guess, but I feel like that's the moment when the audience really kind of loses it because they've just heard the song, they've just heard the story, and the song is like noise, so they can kind of cry under the song. That's what I kind of have experienced. Like, I hear them sniffling sometimes, and I know that, like, oh, God, now I can let go, you know, because she's playing a song, so nobody can hear me, and I can cry now. And I think also the songs, you know, the songs don't really retell the story the songs go no. more into the emotional abstract i don't know I, i'm very bad at talking about it actually because i don't really know how they interact but they do they somehow work and i'm not quite sure why but reflections of yeah of i think other? it's reflections and i think it's sort of um like the story about maybe the songs are part of the grieving actually i'm thinking about this for the very first time but you know as i'm singing about my dad that's what I've taken away from the experience. And as I'm singing the song after Hallie dies, it's called Stupid Crying Song, because sometimes you're just up at three in the morning freaking crying, and like Mm -hmm. nothing you can do about it, and it's not fair, and death isn't fair, and life isn't fair, and like here's just another freaking stupid crying song, and I gotta do it. So that's the grieving there, and then the Honey song, which comes after Maribel called everyone Honey, in this sort of sing-songy voice, which was very mature for a (laughs) 23-year-old, and felt so adult when you were hanging out with her and she's calling you honey, but not in a romantic way. It's just mm-hmm. grown up, you know, so fabulous. Um, so her song is called Honey and re- recalls the road trip that we had. And, um, and I think maybe that's kind of what it is, is the songs are where the grieving happens because mm-hmm. the, the stories is, are not about the grieving. Yeah. So it's interesting. But there were, there were a lot of pieces that we, because it's, you know, Fringe Show is a very set bit, I mean, it's a format, it's usually 60 minutes or less. And, um, I had stories that extended past their deaths, I think in every case. I mean, there was a scene in the hospital when my dad, he had an aneurysm, and my mom and I were in the hospital all night long, and there was a scene of what happened after that. And and he actually, because he had a wooden leg, they gave me his leg when he died. Like, they didn't know what to do with it, and I put it in my car, and I took it on tour. Like, I didn't know where to, I wasn't going to throw it away. It wasn't an up-to-date prosthetic. Like, it was wood with Velcro. Like, nobody was going to take this thing as a donation. And um, so there was that piece of the story. And then, like, after Hallie died, you know, I found all these artifacts, and I... And then after Maribel, like, I saw her in the hospital before she died, which was very weird because I was up and walking around, and there's her family, like, sitting next to her. She was on life support. And and then, like, the wake was on my birthday, and after her birthday, after the wake, we went out to eat, a few friends of us. And somebody, I guess, I got up to go to the bathroom. I guess someone mentioned it was my birthday. We were at this place called the Old, Old Homestead steakhouse on in Chelsea which has been there like a hundred years and I come back from the bathroom and the waiters bring out a birthday cake and they start singing to me and we're all dressed in black like we've just been at this wake it was so inappropriate and so bizarre and I don't think anyone knew that this was going to happen but I think it's the old homestead like this is what they do when it's somebody's birthday they stick a candle in it and they bring it out um so there were all those kinds of stories to share but we realized like no really the story ends when the person isn't well, dies yeah. you know yeah. and that's where this show is but um and i think the, there's the, more to the it. songs become a very useful 
construct. Yeah. It, it's it's not it's not the end of the story. Right. Like and and, and I'm speaking as the audience member. Um, you know, we I'm I'm pointing at Mike. We talked uh, on the way to the next show when we left your show. To like, Hellcross? Yeah, to Hellcross. <laughs> I'm so glad we saw that after your show. <laughs> they saw, after, right after my show, they went to this amazing, like, spinal tappy heavy metal show about this Very band that's on show. trial yeah. with fake British accent. Oh, it's so funny. And we did, we did uh, nothing against your show, but it was nice to have our spirits lifted. <laughs> <Yeah>. I'm sure. <laughs> but Mike and I talked on the way of how we were so surprised by the subject matter that you were dealing with so much grief and death in the show. And yet it's this completely positive, uplifting message. And at, at the risk of <laughs> revealing a moment <laughs> during, during the show, the last five minutes of your show completely destroyed me oh. because it was very fresh of what was going on for both Mike and myself. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't look at Mike. I, I just like, I like absolutely, I cannot look over there because I'm dealing with my own crap. Mm-hmm. I don't know what he's dealing with, but like the, the lines that you said, which you said earlier on this podcast, you know, you were talking about you, somebody made you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not, it's people aren't what they make. They're what they make. It's in other people. Yeah. 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 And, and I started to reflect on who affects me, you know, whether it be my job or my family or my chosen family because you do have your biological family and you have your chosen family and you know mike is part of my chosen family damn it <laughs> <laughs> i like that that's the first word you've said in like 45 minutes yeah <laughs> so welcome to my world yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh but it it i think i got you know again i can't speak for mike but from each of your shows and i think what drew mike you know, Mike reached out to you guys first about having a conversation about what you got from this process. Mm-hmm. And you've been sharing with, like, it helped you or it made you think or it gave you a chance to go through memorabilia or, like, all of that. And all of that's, I know that's all part of the process. And I went through with my dad. Mm-hmm. To this day, my mother still has stuff of my father's. And she'll ask me, like, do you want this? I don't know what to do with this. Yes. Ugh. So it's like I got something very different from each of your shows, but you know it. it you know, thank you to both for creating them because they did offer something intangible. Yeah, you know, but it, it's part of that conversation. It's it's part of the conversation of grief, and and I had a conversation with Mike. Um, if you remember, I asked you uh, what people said to you mm-hmm. because, and you brought it up, Sam, earlier of like, well, God needed them, yeah. or you know. And I, because I grew up in Mississippi, there was a lot of the religious aspect of that. Yeah. And it drove me nuts. Yeah. Because like, yeah, um, dad could have still been useful here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and my dad, my dad died very suddenly. Mm-hmm. So um, with a little bit of lingering, but within a few months we knew and, you know, mm-hmm. it was very, very quick. Both of your shows offer perspective on how other people perceive that grief mm-hmm. and react in weird ways. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I know uh, from friends and acquaintances who came to my show, I had, some, again, I had some people who did lose parents at young ages um, or older ages. And um, actually, they like did all right through it. 
Um, and then of course the dance piece, if, if no. they weren't crying, then that's usually what gets them. Um, but I had a friend come who's never had uh, immense loss and it destroyed her. And she's like, well, now I know what to prepare for. Oh. Cause you oh. never know, like, and I'm so OCD and I'm a producer. So I'm constantly planning like five steps ahead. And I had this checklist of all these places I would need to call. And like, cause I had power of attorney. So like I had all the things that I would need to do, you know, for when my mother died to take care of, send them death certificate. I was like, okay, I looked up how many death certificates I would have to get this, that, and the other. The one thing I forgot <laughs> was to call a cremation service which is in the piece and it's like the last second to last day where i'm like i'm supposed to call a cremation service and i don't know if that comes across in the piece at all but it's very much like okay we're just waiting for her to die let me finally make that call that i did not think to make because i was so busy dealing with the person in front of me um but i had it's been really interesting watching people leave my show. You probably don't get it because of where where you were mm-hmm. in the space that you were at. I stand there and make everybody hug me when they they don't have to hug me, <laughs> but they all pass me, and that's when I hand out my program and say thank you for coming. And we have to collect stuff from them, uh, mainly uh, snot rags. But um, uh, there was one person who came, and he was so like distraught, and he could barely, uh, you know hand us things and I was trying to be like here's my program you need this because you're a reviewer so um (laughs) uh well he wasn't reviewing he was voting um and and he somebody else had told me so he was a nurse so they wear like little badges when they're a nurse uh, so that my stage manager can find them um and he left without even giving us that back. And we're like, ah, oh, crap, we got I'm going to have to make another thing. And then John, who runs Thymaly, was like, oh, I have this thing for you. So this guy, like, just came into the common room, just sat down, was like, that was too real. That was too real. And just, like, sat there kind of in shock for a while, which I find, I love it. Like, I, <laughs> it, it's such a weird feeling to feel happy about making people sad um but one of the things that and it's I, cathartic it, I think. exactly yeah. Yeah, it's cathartic. And, again, and also just the fact that you know you had that effect exactly yeah. and that's what i i mean my devising company is called the visceral city project and it's about creating these visceral experiences um and you know i think a lot about my mother and how that affects me as an artist of how she was able to make this beautiful life for us from so much trauma and pain and never hiding that trauma and pain from me. Um, and so I'm all about trying to find beauty in the pain and what can we learn from this? Uh, and, and that's a lot of, of why I made this piece is trying to find beauty in the grief, you know, the, the ritual of the daughter coming day after day, to take care of the mother. Mm-hmm. Just these things. It is a dance. It is. Mm-hmm. And just, it's horrible, but I'm there, you know, putting lotion on her, doing her hair, singing to her. You know, we all do these things um, because we have to, we have to find beauty in these, in these things. Um, and fun fact, my grandmother, whom I love very dearly, she, I mean, I'm the only artist in my family. I did not grow up with artists at all. But we got, I had called her for something, and she had received my, 
my news, my e-blast. <laughs> and she's like, so um, I'm not coming to the show. And I was like, I guess that's <laughs> the correct answer. You should not come to the show because you lived it. You were there. She's like, but I don't really understand why you're doing this. And I don't think you should be doing it. Oh. And I think that's just, it's just an older way of thinking of like, why are we showing the ugliness? Like we don't, she doesn't want her baby girl, her only daughter to be remembered like this. And I, and I don't see it like that to me again, it's about the love and right. the, the care and about, mm-hmm. about facing grief head on. Um, and, and so that process has been very interesting. I keep looking at my postcard because fun fact, um, this is an actual picture that I took, uh, that I've now obviously to modified and, and, and altered, but that's the last picture that I actually ever took of my mother. Oh, wow. Um, and you can sort of see her up in the top there. She's clutching something. So that was Christmas Day. So she, and in the show, she's on that side of the mattress clutching something with her blanket. Um, but I snapped that Christmas Day and then decided to use it for, for that. But it's this process of, and, I, and we've touched on this, of immense pain and, and realizing just how much that person has shaped you. And I think, which I find so fascinating that you guys brought us both together, is how much yours focuses on their life mm-hmm. and mine focuses on the death, but it's also about, about engaging with it mm-hmm. in a very thoughtful, I hope safe. I hope, I, people have mentioned how they feel safe in the room um, and how we can share in our grief. Because uh, I've always said that grief is easier to bear when you share the load. Um, and that's probably what your music has also done for you, too. Because mm-hmm. you had mentioned about sharing it, about getting it out there and having people then respond to you. Of yeah. Like, oh, yeah, I've had that experience. Well, it was funny in Scotland because Scottish people do not like to show emotion. No. So they would just leave. Like, some of them would talk to me. <laughs> but they, but I would come upstairs. I was in the basement theater and get my step put away and show up. And, like, nobody was there. <laughs> But then they would Facebook email, like later they'd be like, oh, your show, you know, but like they did not, they were not ready to, most of them were not ready to engage, which was kind of funny. But um, the first song I wrote after my dad died was the really the grieving song. It's called Solitaire. And we, you know, we only need one song per section. So it's not in the Mm -hmm. show, but um, I was living in the East Village in the city. My parents live on the Upper West Side, where my mom's still in the El Dorado, where my mom still lives, which is the first song I play. And um, so once a week, I had a voice lesson up near them, and I would go up for the voice lesson, and then I would come over for dinner because, you know, free food, musician, pretty much attached to the hip. (laughs) And then my dad would drive me down 2nd Avenue home because the lights are staggered down 2nd Avenue, a little bit about New York, so you get there faster. And... um, so the song is really about what he left, not what he left me with, well, what he left me with, but also had I known 20 years ago I was writing this show now, it's literally about what became part of me from him and sort of the ways in which we're similar. Um, and the reason it's called Solitaire is because as he was writing, he had a, an office across the street from our apartment that was actually the ground floor of a brownstone. It was an apartment, but he used it as an office this whole career. And... Um, we actually had the same phone line that rang in both places. So any day that I ever called home from school, if I was sick, if I had a problem, wherever I was, he would pick up right away because that was his phone too. And he would, when he was thinking about stuff, he would play solitaire 
cards, like actual cards. <laughs> this was the 80s. Um, so he was always playing solitaire as he was like working through an idea. And of course, I'm, I play solitaire too. And, and after he died, in the months after he died, there were many nights that I couldn't sleep. And I would just get up in the middle of the night and play solitaire, like down on the bed right in front of me. And so it's, you know, the, the line is every round of solitaire as I try to sleep. And, you know, it's all these moments of like, now I have your shoes and every half written page and songs from Fiddler's Roofs, because that's one of that he knew the guys that did um, Sheldon Harnick, who did Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. And so like that feels like it's part of my life that, again, let's show and all about Jews, which my dad's side was Jewish, my mom's side was not. Um, he, he was a Jewish atheist, but he was a Jew. And um, it, so it's, it's songs from Fiddler's Roofs about daughters who have come of age, because the big song from oh, yeah. Fiddler's, Fiddler on the Roof is, you know, sunrise, sunset. And so it was, very, it was all these little pieces that were sort of part of this tapestry of who my dad was to me after I lost him that would hit me like in the middle of the night. And, you know, it just was, it's sort of a, a managing of all of those things is, is what that song is. And, you know, he'd never walk me down the aisle and like that kind of stuff, which funny mm. enough, I don't know for, for you, when did you get married? Uh, my mother was alive. When, she was when, alive. Okay. Thankfully. In fact, yeah. the picture on the back of the, my program, oh. that's from my wedding. Oh, and it's one of okay. my absolute, it was a candid shot oh, between wow. us and she was with it enough. It was the beginning of the end. Yeah. So she was with it and she was still, I think she was living on her own by then. I can't remember. She yeah. must have been. Um, so thankfully for that, but it's the, the children thing that's going to be hard. Yeah, I mean, and it's funny because I, the line in this song, Solitaire, is, um, and it repeats and repeats at the end, is you'll never give me away, I'll walk that aisle alone. Which seemed, that was my, you know, I was 27 when he died, and that was sort of one of my biggest fears. Is like, I didn't have a boyfriend, I didn't even know when I'd be getting, you know, it was not that I really was like, my goal in life wasn't really to be married, but I knew eventually, again, I assumed I would, get married and in love is nice you know love is nice support you know (laughs) and then um I eventually you know I did get married and and a lot of people were worried for me because like what's it going to be like if your dad's not here and it was honestly fine like it was such a happy day and my uncle walked me down the aisle and everybody was just excited and you know George wore a kilt it was adorable and like it was fine like I I didn't really feel sad at all I felt like I had picked the right guy and like my dad had sort of not led me to George but like I mean ironically George is a screenwriter my dad is a screenwriter they never met which is like tragic because George could have gotten a leg up a lot sooner from that (laughs) but um (laughs) but you know it it felt right it just felt like it, it was I was marrying the right person that, you know, and like seeing my dad not just be a dad, but be a husband and seeing, you know, my parents had a good marriage and like seeing that helped me keep my standards high. Mm. And I was like, yeah, this is, I mean, it's not like I almost got married to the wrong guy, but like this was definitely the guy, you know, like Again, I the right guy. As you yeah. say, like, like he is still a part of you yeah. and what he taught you and, and what you learned from him is always going to be there. Yeah. Because I think a lot about that for when we do have children, because... I think a lot about how amazing it is that my mother was able to raise me uh, having experienced so much trauma and mm-hmm. pain uh, and then to turn that around to to be such an amazing, playful, joyful mother. And, and so I used to tell her actually that she should write a book about her life because I think 
again, this idea of sharing, and I used to work a lot with, with women who have been uh, raped and assaulted, um, and just that act of sharing your story is so powerful because it, it gets rid of the shame around it. And my mother never really healed from all of her mm. pain. She'd never healed from her um, the attack uh, when she was raped and stabbed and left for dead. Um, and she never saw therapy after that. She ran out of therapy. She was very stubborn and proud. <laughs> um, but I always thought that she should write her story and have that maybe interspersed with, with child raising because I thought, she was so smart and thoughtful and playful and treated me like a person with my own thoughts and feelings, not just like a child and appendage. And so even though I know, like, even though she's not going to be there, when we eventually enter that chapter, I know she's going to be there mm-hmm. because of all the things that she taught me. Um, and I've written a lot about this in my, like, crappy poetry. Um, uh, don't diminish yourself. In my poetry. You're fabulous. <laughs> um, uh, you know, about, like, will they have her laugh, even though they will never have heard it. You know, and just things like that that you think about but still want to carry on what you've learned from mm-hmm. this amazing person who made you and what you want to pass that down and what, how you want to, to share that with those around you, I think is really amazing. I think also for me one of the hard parts with the infertility is that I won't be able to pass that down. And so that was part of the struggle was like, I want to pass this down. I want to pass my dad, like specifically my dad. I want to pass my dad down and I can't, but he is part of me. And so the ways in which if, when it happens, (laughs) I nurture a child, whether they're adopted, whether it's surrogacy, whatever it winds up being Mm -hmm. like, that will be directly from my dad you know so they won't look like him or you know sound that have this crazy voice or one leg or whatever (laughs) that wouldn't happen anyway but that that was a real struggle and and at one point we had after eight rounds um no sorry six rounds with my eggs we got egg an egg donor and I really had to do battle with that there was a lot of therapy involved because you know George didn't have to give up his genetics which is fine I like him. Um, but, you know, I had, to, I had to give up my genetics. And the therapist was like, that is not a small sacrifice. Like, that is big. You know, you can't, you're, yeah, you have to give that up. And I remember there was a day in the midst of all of that, um, we were with his family on vacation, and I was on a, at an amusement park, and I was on a roller coaster. And um, no one else wanted to go. So I went, like, single person, which means you go up to the front of the line because you fill in all the empty spots. Little hint there for roller coaster fans. And so they put me with a family of three. So it was me next to the dad, and in front of us was the mom and the daughter. And the mom and the daughter had the same color sandy brown hair. They both had ponytails. The daughter was about 11. Same ponytail. Like, they had the same line from the back. And I started crying on the roller coaster because I was like, I'm not going to... I won't have this. Like, I won't look like my child when I have it. And I won't have, you know, this DNA. Like, it stops here. And this is it. And so that's been, like, a real... That's been one of the... It's The fourth act is all about infertility. And I don't really talk about it that much because though it's almost like the thing that everything else leads up to mm-hmm. in the show. Um, but that was one of the real struggles because that was one of the main reasons I finally decided, yes, I do want kids yeah. is I want to carry this on. And then after so many tries, I was like, I'm not, I can't do it. And what's interesting is my, I was the older daughter 
And my dad was, I was born nine days before my dad's 43rd birthday, as I say in the show. So he had his first kid at 43. And so in a way, by having kids older, I'm 45, I am carrying on Mm -hmm. who my dad was because it was career, career, career and artist and writer and, you know, he wasn't a performer, but, you know, and so I think about it's a little more meta that way, but, you know, I think about it that way, but um, it helps. (laughs) I'm really glad you guys are talking about this because every this grief for me is so fresh and I'm a noob when it comes to this kind of stuff. So welcome to the club. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so when you, when you mentioned earlier uh, that it will hit you at random times, like I'll be driving home yeah. because I'll, I will have those thoughts like, Oh, if I ever get married, my mom won't be there. Oh, I'm so excited. I got a job promotion. Oh, I can't tell my mom about it, mm. but like you're making me think about it a lot differently now. So thank you. Yeah, I had that, um, like, even my show. <laughs> like, I want to tell my mom. And then it's like, wait, no, it's about her death. I can't tell her she's dead. Um, and even um, when I finally, so I've been a teaching assistant at USC for a couple years now. And then finally I've been hired to teach an actual course this next semester. Congratulations. On, thank yeah. you. And we opened a bottle of champagne because it's something I've been working for for a couple years now. Um, and it's con- teaching contemporary theater in a changing world, which I am a contemporary theater artist, so I'm super stoked. But I just like burst into tears because, of course, the first person I wanted to tell next to my husband um, <laughs> was my mother. And of course, I couldn't tell her. So you do have these things where just it can hit you in, in weird ways. And it's still pretty fresh for me. It's only been a year and a half. Um, and I made a show about it. Um, uh, and it, it, it is really interesting how it hits you and you think, oh, I can't tell them this. Oh, I can't tell them that. And I, I try so hard to be thankful for the 30 years that we had together Mm -hmm. and try to remember that. And again, realizing that those 30 years together, you know, those years that you had together, it is going to prepare you for the years without them. And it sucks. It fucking sucks. There's no easy way to, to say it. Yeah. It fucking sucks. Yeah. But again, this is the thing that I, I marvel about the human will of perseverance um, because that was my mother. She was a fucking fighter and she raised me to be one too. And so I try to honor her with that. Um, four days after she died, I was in the rehearsal room for a show that I was devising last year. And the greatest way to honor her is to do the work. Mm-hmm. You know, the greatest way to honor those that we love profoundly is to do the work, is to live our lives. Um, and it, you know, you will have a journey ahead of you of waking up in the middle of the night, crying and shame. Oh God, the shame when it, like it hit me like a ton of bricks and the guilt and the, um, things that I wish I had done better or things that I wish I had said or mm. have been kinder or more patient. Um, cause it was, I mean, it was sudden for you, Mike, for me, it was, it was a long process. Uh, and so it was really hard, but you have to know, like, if you do the work, you are honoring their life. Um, and I think that's what's also amazing of being an artist, mm-hmm. of being able to do the work, but also then being able to share that work. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. It's funny because for me, it was, I, I 
when my dad died, I was very matter of fact about it at first. And I was like, you know, he lived a full life and we had a fabulous relationship. I'm just lucky that I didn't have any unresolved issues and I just had such a wonderful dad and I'm, everything's fine. And, and then all, I think I told you, Mike, in an email, I was like, all of a sudden one night at like midnight, I collapsed in a phone booth on Avenue A and I like couldn't handle it. Like I just completely fell apart. And yet, you know, and I found a therapist and I definitely recommend that. Um, and, you know, working through it, it was a lot of like I like I went through this period where I didn't see any point in getting married because then you'll die, which it doesn't even make sense to me now. But like literally I, I was I actually started dating a guy that was a very good friend of mine and his dad had also died. And so we were sort of like then we became more than friends and and we said the word love a few times, but I didn't really feel like I didn't really feel it. And I especially didn't understand why we would get married because then we would die. And everyone's like, um, there's a significant amount of living that happens between those two things. And I was like, no, no, you get married and then you die. And they were like, what are you talking about? So I, I had to kind of, it was almost like my whole life got compacted like this because all I could see was death at the end. And then it took a while for it to sort of like expand again into like the unknown and the length of time that we live, you know. Um, but then when I was dealing with the infertility stuff, that was a different kind of struggle. And it's interesting because I had a different therapist. I'm not always in therapy, but I had a, a therapist for that. <laughs> and she was really helpful. She said, well, the problem is what, the, you know, not the problem, but like this kind of grief that I had with infertility is called complicated grief. Because I had a lot of ambivalence about being a mother, about having kids. It was, was it going to destroy my life's work? Was I never going to be able to be a musician anymore? Like, can I go on tour? How am I going to do this? And she, you know, and I, and everyone's always like, oh, but once you have them, it's just, we figure it out. Oh, once you, you know, but when they're yours, cause I was like, I never really cared about kids that much. And everyone's like, but when they're yours, you just right away, you fall in love and you'll see. But I could never get to that point. I never got to that point of where you resolve all of those issues. If you do, I don't know as a mom, because I couldn't make the kids. So I couldn't, you know, so she was like, that's complicated grief. She said, the grief you had for your dad, that's actually, it's called simple grief. Because, yeah, you weren't... Start, like, people who had complicated relationships with their parents and rough relationships with their parents, they have complicated grief when their parents pass away because there's a lot of unresolved issues that they didn't get to work through. And and it's kind of having her, like, delineate it, like, give it a name, mm. I guess, mm. helped me. Like, I didn't know about the simple yeah. grief when I was having it, but when I was having the complicated grief, like... I would be like, oh, I have complicated grief. Like, just having yeah. a title. I was like, oh, this is a thing. I know what this is. And, and the other thing that I talk about in the show is when people experience a death, people do say the wrong things for sure. But they let you grieve. They're trying to help you grieve. Oh, yeah. Yes. It comes, it, it comes a, from a good place. As they say in the deep south, yeah. it comes from a good place. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> yeah. But yes. yes. But with infertility, they won't let you grieve because they need you to keep trying. They need to give you hope. And the problem is when, when it's over, it needs to be over because you have to put your life back together. It's trauma like any other mm -hmm. kind of trauma. And the world won't let you stop yeah. and make a new path for yourself. And so the other day, I was I just went to the... Here, here's a little TMI for my haunt life. I had a yeast infection. Woo! As long as you invited me over here, let's get down to it. And I went to the gynecologist, as you do. And um, this 
most gynecologists in America, and I found out not in other countries, but they're always also obstetricians. It's always OBGYN. And so you go to the gynecologist for a simple checkup or a yeast infection, and the room is filled with pregnant women every time. And they're glowing. Everyone's glowing. The staff is glowing. They all want to talk about how many weeks they are and how great they're feeling or whatever, mm. whatever. And you're just sitting there, like literally time and again, I've stared at my shoes, like praying for this moment to be over. Just let me get in the room because it's like so painful. So this happened, and then I, they needed a urine sample. We're really getting into it, guys. So they needed a urine sample. So I get online <laughs> for the urine sample, and I'm waiting for the bathroom, and a woman joins the line, all smiles, never seen her in my life, and she takes one look at me, and she says, oh, is it your first time getting pregnant? And I was <sighs> like, what? Like, what? And so I decided I'm not going easy on this person. And I said, right back, I said, I can't get pregnant. I said, I'm not pregnant. I can't get pregnant. I just like slapped her in the face. And she was like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I shouldn't have. So it's sort of like there's constantly these moments where you get hit with it. And it like you wouldn't, I don't know where you might be online that someone would be like, how's your, you know, well, that might happen, I guess. But they wouldn't be like, what's, what does your mother do? And you have to be like. Like, uh, she, nothing. You know, she's dead. That does actually happen all the time. Um, mm, yes. So on Facebook. <laughs> Boy, you are bringing. <laughs> yeah. uh, right? I have, I have a couple of stories. Okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and you can't, you know, it's hard. Like, it's a minefield. People don't oh, yeah. know what's happening for you when they walk up to and, you. And sometimes you're able to talk about it, and sometimes you're not. Like, I definitely know not long after my mother died, so just a few months, I would be able to talk to somebody and be like, I am now perfectly fine. And then the next day go through this again Can't and function. then burst into tears. And yeah. I actually hate crying in front of people. I do it a lot in my show. <laughs> <laughs> but you wrote that. I wrote that. <laughs> that is all on You're you. You're owning that shit. <laughs> yeah. You're in control. Own it. Own it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is like the, the experience of grief I think is so fascinating. Um, because it's so unique to the person, just like any relationships. I feel like mm-hmm. relationships are always so unique to the two, to the people involved in that relationship, mm-hmm. like a fingerprint. Um, and it's all, it's also really fascinating to then, again, we, we touched on this about how people project their own experiences mm-hmm. then on, onto it. And I even, I'm sure I've even not been great in, in consoling other people. I'm usually pretty good about it because I've experienced it. Yeah. So, you know, I don't do the, like, it gets better. Like, you just get used to it. Yeah. It doesn't really get better. Yeah. You just, you learn to keep living. Um, like, there's not a day that goes by where I don't think about my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and for me, my ritual before each show would read a really sad poem <laughs> <laughs> to get me properly back in the I'm sad mode. Uh, and to, you know, say this one's for you, mom, mm-hmm. you know, and then start crying before I enter this, <laughs> this <Yeah>. space. <laughs> um, but it, it is, you have to just, I'm a big believer in feeling it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and days, yes, you have to pull it together and keep working. So like, again, four days after I was in the rehearsal room because we had tech in two weeks and I'd been making this piece with this beautiful group of people. And I said, all right, guys. So, and then burst into tears. Oh. I said, so this might happen, <laughs> but we're here to do the work. And we kept going. And you have to allow yourself 
that space Mm -hmm. to be to wake up in the middle of the night and cry or play solitaire exactly you have and you also have to protect yourself like there were people when when each of these people passed away there were people that said all the wrong things and I didn't re-contact them for a while till I was ready because I couldn't be around people that were going to be unsafe for me and same thing I mean with the fertility there's people I haven't talked to in five years not because I don't like them but I just they always say the wrong I mean I I say it in my show like my I have a cousin who said oh you should just take one of my kids I've got three and they're driving me crazy and I've not I literally have not spoken to her since that day because I can't and I love her dearly and I'm just I can't do it right now and and so like with this woman at the gynecology office I immediately posted on Facebook, like still in the office, I posted on Facebook that this had just happened and what she said. Such an odd question. Like, this is not, okay, at a Lamaze class? Sure. Like, bring up the, uh, everyone's pregnant in a Lamaze class. It's gynecology. It's not. So anyway, so I posted this on Facebook and I've never gotten, I got like a hundred responses and people with all different levels of experience. Some of them didn't have infertility, but they'd had a miscarriage, but they still looked pregnant. And people would mm-hmm. saunter up to them at the grocery store. Oh, when are you due? And like, they were just waiting for their stomachs and have to, to go, go back through down. the process. And the whole of, thing. Uh. And, and in all of this, this one woman wrote, Sam, I have a Hopi Kachina fertility deity, and I would be happy to lend it to you. And I don't offer this to everyone, but please let me know where I can send it. And I was like, ah, like, no, it's over I'm not still doing this and I need to rebuild I've already I have rebuild my life and find my joy in some other way and I again I did not go nice I just I wrote right back I said do not send me a Hopi fertility deity I said we are not doing this anymore we we're on a different path now and that was I had no smiley face no not like I did not sugarcoat it and she was like Oh, okay. I mean, but just so you know, like it's really special to me. And da-da. and I was like, no, like we're done. We're done with this conversation. But that's the thing with infertility is they won't let you yeah. stop. They all want to introduce you to their friend who's an embryologist or to try a different doctor. Oh, but did you do acupuncture? And it's like, yes, yes. And I think that, I think everything that speaks to a lot of, of people's desire to help. Yes, and, absolutely. But also people not understanding how to interact with you. Right. When you're grieving something that's mm-hmm. so intangible. Right. Uh, grieving something that's you didn't happen that you can't make that's right. not existing like that's a really that's yeah. a mind fuck to deal yeah. with and a lot of people can't can't properly handle that where i know some people like they're like i can't be around this certain friend when i'm feeling depressed because they can't they don't know what to do yeah and i'm like you can be whatever you want around me yeah. because i've oh. struggled with depression anxiety like immense grief trauma like here's the menu (laughs) whatever because you know sometimes you need to just sit in that and that makes other people uncomfortable yeah yes very much to allow others to sit in that but then also not being able to fix it right to help it yes and of course everybody's oh have you tried this have you done this have you done therapy have you and it's like it's my life (laughs) just like hug me yeah yeah and it, it, buy me some ice cream yeah. sometimes well, you, you know? guys are like hitting I don't, I don't know how you're feeling about this mike yeah. but i'm listening to <laughs> Silent this back there. like oh my god you guys are expressing <laughs> so much of what i went through you know my, my dad passed away years ago like like what nine years nine years ago or yet yeah, nine nine years ago and um but I'm, I'm listening to this, like, and you are making it all fresh again. Uh-oh. Which, <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good thing. And, 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 I, and what you just said, Sam, about the, it, 
it it it's not related, but it's related about like when my dad passed away, something shifted in me. Mike and I have had this conversation. Something shifted in me about relationships. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want anyone near me. I don't want to be in a relationship. I don't want to even think about that aspect of my life right now. Mm-hmm. It took me a very long time to figure out like. This is part of the grieving process, but I do not understand what part it is. It is very, I mean, it's, I don't say this in my show. I make it sound like George and I were all wine and roses from the start, but actually we didn't get together for two years after the first meeting at the Xena offices. He was a writer on Xena, Warrior Princess. And I was trying to get music on the show, so we got connected. But, um, and he liked me. And then the second time we met, I liked him, but neither of us knew. And then there was this like ridiculous John Hughes movie going on for two years where like I told his best friends, but they didn't tell him. And he didn't tell them because one of them liked me. And I mean, these are people almost in their 30s. And we were like acting like we were 12. Um, and then I had the other boyfriend for a while. And I ran into him one night with the other boyfriend. And he thought that was weird that I was with this random guy. And then he was with the same friends. And they went to a diner. And they were like, no, no, he's cool. Yeah, we like him. And George is like, I don't know. Something doesn't match with her and that guy. And one of his, that was the night, finally, a year and a half later, that one of his friends was like, well, that's funny. Because she told us she really used to like you. And he's like, what? Like, you're telling me this now? Like, what? So... Around that time, I was up crying at 3 a.m. one night playing solitaire in bed, and I just checked my email, like, for the hell of it. And um, it, there was an email from George saying, like, hi, you know, I, I, I just wanted to say, like, that time we hung out at Blot, we'd hung out a bunch of times, that time we hung out, and, you know, I really wanted to kiss you, but I never said, I didn't do it, and I never really said anything, and, you know, I just wanted to put that, and I was like, what the fuck? Like, this is too, who is this guy? Like, I put him out of my mind. I had a huge crush on him for like six months. He lived out here and I lived in New York. And then I was like, all right, clearly that's not happening. So like, I'm moving on. And I was way past it at this point. And now suddenly out of nowhere, like he's kissed me. What? Like my dad died. Like literally that was, I was like, my dad died. My dad died. My dad died. Like that is all that is happening for me right now. And this was months after my, I mean, my dad died in November. I probably didn't get this email until like, I don't know, the following November or like almost a year later. And I wrote him back and I was like, yeah, um, I used to really like you, but I, you know, my dad died and I, I just, nothing's happening right now. Like I can't. And he was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I'm sorry about your dad. I heard about that. Da, da, da. And then it was still another, it was April before we actually got together. Cause I was, mm-hmm. and I think part of it is that I really was like, what's date like why be with anyone it was literally yeah, but, like yeah why? when you said that a few minutes ago it was yeah. like oh my god that's where i was yeah and i don't even know if i vocalized it as well as you did too yeah like i i still can't quite put my finger on the connect like there's a connection i still haven't figured I out i don't know either it's like a wrinkle in time like it starts with the death and then there's death like yeah, there's only like, death why, i don't know like what's why are point? those things connected like yeah it, this does makes no sense it makes no sense and i so. and i my entire identity was a girl who with a dead father and nothing else. So why would I have a boyfriend? Like that didn't make any sense. And- it's really interesting because I got the complete opposite, you know, and I don't, cause I went home and I met, uh, cause I don't, I don't go home often. I've been out here for 17 years and I met my cousin's kids. Like the, in that time they had gotten married and had kids and meeting them and like playing with them. It's like, Oh my God. And like I came out of that, but like, Oh my God, I want a family. Like, wow. you know, so it's it's yeah. really interesting to see the the two dynamics. It yeah. is because people are so different. It yeah. Is. I mean, for me, I was so thankful I had my husband. I'm one of those I need stability in my life, mm-hmm. um, especially because being an artist, there's so many 
unknowns all the time. And as with somebody with anxiety, it's like, I need something like stable. He's a programmer. <laughs> he has a stable job. He's even tempered. Like I think if oh, he were to ever like the opposite of us, I think <laughs> he would, if he were ever to yell at me, yeah. I probably would disintegrate because I can't even fathom that. Yeah. He's so not me. And to have that support, and he also he is uncomfortable with sadness because he just doesn't want people to be sad. Mm-hmm. So you know, sometimes he would try to cheer me up, and it, I would have to be like. Baby, I just need you to hold me right now while I sob. It's fine. Or sometimes I would wake him up with my crying, you know, and he would make a joke, be like, oh, Jesus, you woke me. Sorry, he's Irish. That's why I'm doing that voice. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh, Jesus, you woke me up again. And I'm like. Oh, I so (laughs) wish you hadn't explained that. I just got (laughs) in there. Jesus, (laughs) Jesus, stop crying. Stop your crying. Um, And, you know, and I would literally wake him up with sobbing um, in the middle of the night and he would hold me. And then sometimes I wouldn't wake him up. I was able to. To just sob quietly. Um, But I was so thankful to have that. But for me, which I'm sure is, I mean, it sounded like for you when you got married, you were fine by then because you knew you met the right person. Mm -hmm. I'm personally so thankful that my mother got to meet um, Finn, my husband. Um, I I do tell him, like, I wish you had, like, really known her before because by the time he had moved over... um, you know, she was starting to decline. So she wasn't quite there. Um, and he had met her once before when early on in our relationship. And that was fine. But again, it wasn't quite the vibrancy that she had been. Um, but I'm so glad she got to meet him because my mother was an asshole magnet. <laughs> like, compl- my biological father being included in that. <laughs> um, and everybody thought that I would follow suit So then for me to find somebody who's so kind and generous and loving and funny um, was really great. Like even when my grandma first met him uh, in 2012, she's like, he's so nice. (laughs) And I was like, yes, did you think I was going to date an asshole like my mother did? Like my mother didn't raise me to make those same (laughs) decisions. And she always told me it's better to be single than to be with somebody unworthy of your love. Um, and I still believe that to I this think day. that's really, really good advice. Yeah. And, and so I'm, I'm really thankful that she, she got to meet him. So she knew that I ended up with somebody worthy of my love. Mm-hmm. That's um, so important. And that we got to share that day together because even when we got married, um, I knew that she wouldn't live to see grandchildren. Mm-hmm. I knew it. I just, I knew that the year before she had gone septic and almost died and I'm so thankful she didn't because we got a couple more years that were horrible, but also she got to live for that wedding day mm-hmm. um, and, and got to see that happen. Um, but it is, it is one of those things that just kind of makes you think about life in a different way. So, of course, when you're, when you're single and you're grieving such an, a huge loss, you, you're not really in a – it's similar to depression. Like, you're not in a state to be – fully present with another human being. Mm-hmm. Um, like I had already had that relationship. So I was able to be a mess in front of him. He's one of the few people that I would allow myself to be like that. So when you're feeling those things, like, of course you don't want to be in a relationship yeah. because you're like, I feel like a crazy person and I never know what mood's going to come out at any given moment. And sometimes I'm fine and sometimes I'm not. So who's going <laughs> to Who's going to want to date me <laughs> while I'm a hot mess? Like it takes it. I can completely understand that it takes time. Yeah. 
it just felt irrelevant to me somehow. It was like dating. What? Like what? You know, like, no, no, no. We're playing solitaire and crying right now. That's what the activity is. Like, <laughs> this is the doing. rest of my life. A woman with priorities. I totally yeah. get it. <laughs> Let's get this together. What are you talking about? Dude in California who missed uh, his chance. Uh, um, but what's really interesting is because George is a screenwriter, he's gotten to know my dad through his writing. Oh. So he's like, I haven't read my dad's screenplays. I'm just sort of impatient, I guess. But George is like really, he's dove into this work. And my dad also taught um, advanced screenwriting at Columbia Film School for 12 years and was still teaching there when he died. And so he was, for the first few years, he was recording all of his classes and getting them transcribed because he was working on a book about screenwriting, which didn't come to fruition. But we have hundreds of pages of my dad's literally talking and working with students and talking about how he creates work and giving them guidance and and George has read these binders it's literally like three ring binders printed out from this transcription service and so he really does kind of know him in a way like without ever having met him and I also after my dad died I mean this was 1999 so he had a word processor as we call yes. it. I think yes. he had finally, he did have an email address, which is still my mother's email address, which is very fun. It's one, it's been at AOL, which is like, nobody has that email address anymore <laughs> these days. But anyway, so, um, and she only uses it for her spam. But anyway, so we had his computer and sort of, I think, I don't know why, but I print, I printed this document that I found. I think it was sort of mysteriously titled and it was sitting on his desktop. And it's this bizarre catch-all document it was just i think a a brain dump document they got Mm -hmm. audited one year with the house in connecticut of like where's your residency thing and so a large piece of it is him just explaining like how often we were there and the family events that had happened there and the reasons we used and the work he did there as part of his work and like went and then it kind of devolves into this diary entry and i found out he coped with depression which i never knew and it unfolds, but the way it's written is just beautiful and it just unfolds. It's random. It's not something you'll ever publish. It's just random and it's brain dumpy. And then suddenly it goes into a chronicle of the projects he has active at that moment because he switched agencies and chronicling that. And then it kind of goes back into the, and it's, it's got a whole section about my car accident with Maribel mm. and from his point of view and wow. the day that, wow. and so we originally, I wanted to put this in the show, but again, like we didn't quite know where to put it and we didn't wind up keeping it, but his, the, this was right when one of his theater projects was falling apart or one of his film projects. I can't remember. And then all of a sudden in the middle of all of that, and then the phone call from Arizona is how it starts. And he chronicles, they bought the tickets for Maribel's family. They had to coordinate getting everybody out there, seeing me in the hospital for the first time, going to the second, because Maribel was helicoptered to a head trauma unit in Flagstaff, going to Flagstaff, waiting for me to finish my saying my goodbyes, you know, taking the rental car, opening the trunk where all the stuff from our car had been transferred after the wreck and like seeing everything. And I mean, it just was like, but it's very like boom, 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 boom. It's not written as a novel. It's just like this and then this and then. Yeah. But you feel the anguish of a father whose daughter almost died and it just like wrecked me. And yet at the same time, it's so beautifully written and it's so like not beautiful in like an E.M. For- Forster 
Am Forster? That sounds weird to me right now. Yeah. You know who I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> view, 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 room of the view. Not yes. like that. Merchant Ivory, no. It's very like matter of fact, but like it's just so interesting, his turns of phrase and the way he puts things. And George is a very different writer. Like he's an action adventure mm-hmm. guy. He's on a Netflix show right now. He was on a Disney show with a robot and monsters. And like, you know, he's a Spielberg Star Wars guy. So he sees this kind of playwright-based writing of my dad's and he sort of aspires to that. Like, he really kind of looks up to him, even though he's never met him before. It's a very interesting That's so relationship. Yeah. I mean, he's actually... And he wound up... George went to Columbia then. He got his grad degree from Columbia, which turned out not to be the program he thought it was going to be. Apparently, my dad was a bit of an outlier with the teaching style at Columbia. We found out the hard way, but um, <laughs> but it was good. But, yeah, so it's, it's very... Um, it's an interest. It's weird. It's almost like they did meet, but they didn't it's very yeah that's so yeah. beautiful and that because he was a writer of course writers chronicle and oh my gosh know, yeah keep mm-hmm. everything so for you to have that yeah yeah that's something I wish I did more of was writing things down as they were happening I did this thing for a while where I would chronicle like phone calls with my mother um, and I'm so glad I I wish I was again I wish I had done it more thoughtfully but I'm so glad I had the few that I had because when you're dealing with a, a parent who's who's declining over time, and you're the you know sole person in charge, uh, you know power of attorney, and I had to, I was responsible for everything, but from afar, um, I would have notes of like, oh, mom called today, and it felt like I was talking to my mom again for the first time in a few months. She sounds really good. We laughed, like just those little notes. Mm-hmm. Because you remember so much of the hard time, the hard mm-hmm. time. Um, so having like just these little notes that I had with with her, or like I use Time Hop, and so I I get these like little Facebook reminders of like when she writ, wrote on my wall or sent me a picture, or just these little things like that of of those things that we chronicle, that those moments that we capture mm-hmm. um, to have. To like, oh yeah. I can relive that. So, like, what a beautiful treasure trove that you it's have with your father's work. It's interesting because also he died before the digital age really yeah. took over. I mean, 1999, yeah, he had an email address, but nobody had cell phones much, you know. Like, we weren't really... We barely had a computer. In fact, then. I had my yeah. first cell phone when he died, and I borrowed it from a friend to go on tour. So that was the first time I had used a cell phone. So it was like, I mean, he missed 9-11, thank God. But, you know, all these things that he's not around for that are, like, a total part of the fabric of this world but he's part of a fabric of you know kind of a different world at this point it's really bizarre it's very bizarre and then I also realized like as much as I miss him if he were alive now I mean he was 70 in 1990 he'd be 79 no wait he'd be 89 years old now so it's like I I don't know what that would be you know to watch him decline or where you know my grandfather died when he was 92 and he was actually still pretty with it he had an aneurysm as well runs in the family but I don't know if I'd be happy with that like he did kind of you know the I don't know if this is good or bad but when people pass away they stay that age forever Mm. which sometimes is a good thing depending on I mean hopefully not at the last very very last moments but like you know they my dad will be 70 for the rest of my life Maribel will be 24 for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. Hallie will be 42 for the rest of my life and so there's a weird kind of comfort in that. Mm-hmm. It's not much of a comfort, but it's it's something. Like, I th- often think now, if Maribel were still alive, would we still be friends? Would she have, you know, 
just gotten a job and had kids and you know I don't know that there's anything wrong with that but like would because she was like this crazy dynamic character to me so what what would be happening now you know it's hard you can almost drive yourself crazy trying to think about it but yeah absolutely I mean my mother always knew that she wouldn't live to see an old age uh, primarily because she had cirrhosis of the liver Mm -hmm. like she wasn't diagnosed uh, until I think she was diagnosed in 97 or 98 so she had already been living with hepatitis C for like 18 years Mm. um and by that point she already had cirrhosis of the liver which at that time was untreatable and then they're like you should test your daughter because i was born in 86 Mm. um and it's very rare to pass on hepatitis c from mother to child um but i'm very rare breed i actually uh was born with hepatitis c wow but thankfully um uh when i was diagnosed so i was yeah so i was 12 um, 12 or 13, uh, I only had like beginning stages of fibrosis of the liver, which is reversible. And I didn't opt for treatment then, thankfully, because while I was in, living in London, I qualified for a medical trial um, and was cured of hepatitis C. So wow. my mother also lived to see me being cured mm-hmm. because she was devastated that I had it um, and had had it because she contracted it after being attacked so Mm. it's just like this whole vicious cycle Mm -hmm. uh, of it infecting our lives so thank goodness that I was cured because also if I had to watch my mother die from advanced stages of cirrhosis of the liver of her liver completely poisoning her and shutting down thinking that that would be my fate I probably would not have made a show about it like I wouldn't be as calm and collected about it as I am now because it would have been too hard Mm -hmm. to to see that thinking that that could be my fate but I'm so thankful that that I was cured um and that she lived for that as well like when I told her you know trial is 100% success I'm officially cleared like she was so happy um, and actually, towards the end of her life, they were putting her on that medication as well that's out now oh, wow. um, to hopefully put her on a transplant list because she wasn't eligible for a transplant because of the hepatitis. So oh. it was all these like different things of, of you know, advancements and stuff. But um, I'm very thankful that she got to live to see me cured because that, yeah, it's a huge thing. Sam, you had mentioned that you found your dad's writing, um, and I had a similar situation. And it's one of the, it's it's kind of going back to those like those weird sign things that may or, we may or may not believe in. Um, but so, um, like I said, my parents had a house fire, and in they had to get out, so they didn't have their car keys. Mm. Um, when we came back from the hospital after she had passed, randomly her car key was in her car door, all burned up. So. You know, the obvious like thing to think is, oh, the the contractors found it and put it in. But you know, of course, there's the, the it got there by itself. Yeah, you know? I know. Um, but uh, when my dad and I went in the car, uh, there was a notebook in the back seat, and the first page I, I flipped to, this is what I found. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll show, I took a picture. I'll show you the picture. But this is the first thing I saw. So excuse me while I wreck myself um um whenever you read this i want you to know how much (laughs) how much i love you with all my heart 
And like she had wrote that too to my cousin's kids because she would always take them. Uh, she was basically their unofficial grandmother because I didn't. She didn't have grandkids of her own, so she used my cousin's kids. Um, but they would always write notes to each other, like and left it in the back seat. And the thing is, like. I, the way I flipped it, like at the very top, it says to Olivia and Madison, but I didn't see that. All I saw is like, you know, <laughs> the note. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, and, and it's so, it, that's the way I felt when I read this random thing for my dad, which was not written for anyone to read. He was just like sort of brain dumping in it. And all of a sudden it was like, Oh my God. You know, and when I was in the accident, I had a concussion. So I was super out of it. I mean, I was like making up poems. I was having a great old time. I had no idea. You know, like I didn't even really understand what had happened for a few days. And, and my parents had to carry that entire weight and also know that they, I was going to be finding out what had happened once things cleared a little bit. And, you know, that must've been tough on them. Oh, I, I think it was very very hard on them and you know and I think in some ways they are also eternal optimists like me and so we kind of got through it my mom is not the most um in analytic person in the world um so she kind of made it through um but I think my dad's good at hiding stuff and so I would never have known Mm. I mean I knew they were very upset and and two months to when we're talking about continuing the work Two months to the day of the accident, I was back on tour. I yeah. booked the rest of the tour, and I went back on tour. And my parents were horrified. I but mean, it's they, like, what are you going to do? Stay home and wallow? Yeah, that's not what we do. Right? They were terrified. Well, and also they were worried that I would like drive myself off the road on purpose, subconsciously, mm-hmm. out, out of like solidarity for Maribel or something. Like they just did not know what was going to happen. And but to me, it was like. No, if I don't finish this tour, like I fail her. Yes. Which again, this doesn't yes. make sense. I was like, she died for nothing if I don't finish this tour, which is like, what? Like that doesn't even make sense at all. Nobody dies for anything. There's not like a reason someone should die, but I, but yeah, somehow unre- in my it, mind. It's the unrelated and yet, but and I have a question for you. Yeah. Finishing the tour. Yeah. What did it do for you? It was bizarre. It was bizarre. It was, I actually just did. Um, an expanded version of that Maribel story for the Moth main stage, which I may keep doing. I don't know. Oh, wonderful. We'll see. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, it was a challenge because the entire, I, was, I wasn't even going to bring anybody with me on the first tour. I didn't even, it honestly hadn't even occurred to me to bring somebody with me. And um, I was, once the tour was booked, I'd talked to a jazz musician. I knew that she was a touring jazz musician and she would do Europe and go all over. And I really sort of looked up to her and she was like, Oh, she said, you know, I remember my first tour. You really should think about bringing someone with you. Cause this is a lot to do all by yourself. And I was like, what? I can handle it. You know? And, and then I was like, well, she has a good point. So Maribel really was the perfect person. Cause she mm-hmm. was all adventurous like me. Um, so she was with me, with me, with me, with me, with me. We were sharing clothes. We had our, you know, I had her hairs on my sweatshirt. Like we were just in this car day in, day out, sleeping in tents, borrowing beds from people, whatever, whatever. And then suddenly I was back there alone. And that was weird. Like I flew, mm. I wasn't back where we had been because I literally picked up where we left off. So I flew to San, we, we ended it in Arizona and the next stop was going to be the Grand Canyon. And then we were going to go to L.A., and work our way up the West Coast to Seattle and back around to Missoula again. And so I flew to San Diego, and it was, it was 
it was weird. She was she was sort of with me, like in my head. And then I got to L.A. and there were a couple agents from my this. So Maribel died before my dad died. She died in ninety seven, and my dad died in ninety nine. Things are not in chronological order in my show. Um, and so my dad was sending a couple agents from APA to my show, which they wouldn't have been the same division anyway, but he was sending them along. And I actually had to have a little, I remember driving down sunset, having this little conversation with Maribel, like out loud and just telling her, like, I had to just put her away for a few hours. Like, I just need to focus right now. And this is an important show. And I'm just, I hope you don't mind, but I'm just going to like, I need you to just, you know, not be with me for a little bit and, and then we'll be together again. And, you know, like you really feel like they're still there. Mm. Like they're really still there. And, um, it was this little place called the crooked bar. It's on, it's so weird. Cause I live like three blocks from there now, but it's on, um, <laughs> it used to be a place called the coconut teaser, which was like a big rock bar, like the whiskey kind of thing. And mm. then in the basement they had like their Wait, acoustic room. It's no, it's on. Um, did I say Coenga? Sorry. No, I, I, I'm asking oh, you if it's on Coenga. No, it's on um, uh, Crescent Heights and um, uh, Sunset on the corner. Like when you come down Laurel Canyon. Oh yeah. Right there on the right, there's sort of like this event space now. Yeah. That used to be this like heavy metal club called the Coconut Teaser. With really bad parking. Bad parking. I think pretty bad bands too. Actually, was okay. the impression I got. It was all bad. Yeah. And then in the basement, there was a little acoustic room called the Crooked Bar, and that's where I had gotten this oh. gig booked. And um, I don't know if this was the original gig, but that whenever I rebooked the tour, this was what I got. Right. And but it was a lovely little venue, and I got in there, and you know there were like fifteen people there. <clears throat> and um, in fact, in the Moth story, I mirror it to that very first gig in New York City where there were 12 or 15 people there because Maribel booked me this very, my first ever gig in New York City and just out of charm. And um, so I got there and I played Rain and Sunshine because I had written it in the two months intervening and the room just like came together. You know, it was like this hush and people listening in and that. and I really felt like she was there in the good way, you know, cheering me on and like she was back on tour with me. Um and I don't really remember much about the rest of the tour. It was about 10 days, but it was it was a long time before she wasn't part of my identity. Like again, it was like when my dad died, that was all I was for a long time was a girl with a dead dad. Mm-hmm. And like when Maribel died, that's all I was. It was like a girl whose friend died on her own tour. Like what who's how's the, how do you get past that? And mm-hmm. um and so Oh, there she is now. The lights always flicker. That's Maribel's thing is the lights flicker. Um, it's not the heat wave, of course, you understand. It's Maribel. Um, but it, yeah, and, and I wrote several, I mean, I've written several songs about it. I have to like kind of keep it sparser. Um, and we started a foundation at Cornell. I met her at Cornell and, and we started a foundation there in her name and we give out an award every year for community service because she was always doing community-minded things. And um, so I had like the envelopes and the donation slips with me at all my gigs and I would put them on the merch table and I got it, you know. And then in 2008, so this was 97 and so in 11 years later, I quit folk music cold turkey and I switched and I started a rock band, The Happy Problem. Totally different music, totally different world, totally different everything. And I never played any of those songs anymore. So that was now 10 years ago. And some of my very best friends don't even know the story because they've never heard the songs. It doesn't mm. come up anymore. Like they, they know now because of the show. But 
it was interesting because it was an absolute defining piece of me for so long and four nights a week all average four nights a week all year long for 12 years I played these songs mm-hmm. and told the story not this whole thing that's in the show but a brief yeah. introduction and um, sometimes less detail like you were saying less detail can be more effective mm. so rather than being like my first tour I was in a car accident my friend died here's the song like nobody wants to hear that <laughs> so I would say you know on my very first tour um, a friend my friend came with me and it didn't work out the way we expected and then I would play the song and people find it as mm. as they go which helps them put themselves into it more as well I hate people that are like, this is a song about da 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 And then yeah. they play the song, and it's about da 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 And you're like, you just told me what it is. Um, but once I stopped playing that song, it was weird, because it was almost like I lost her for a few years. Mm. And then with this show, she's come back, like, full force, which is great. It's really great, because I also feel like I'm in a better place to handle it now than I was before. But it's also, like, more tragic now, because as you get older, you value things more. Mm-hmm. And I realize, and now I feel it from her mother's perspective and my father's perspective. You know, like I see it from so many more. I'm sure when I have kids, I will see it all over again from yeah. a new perspective. Like it keeps changing. So, that, And that's the thing about grief too, because you're never not in grief. Right. And, and so I definitely, huh, maybe it's my mother now. <laughs> um, <laughs> again. The, the lights, lights are... keep flickering for those yeah. of you listening. <laughs> and I know, again, after my mother died, like I needed people to know why I was the way I was, but I didn't want to just introduce and be like, hi, my mom just died. Hi, I'm grieving. Like you can't, you have to keep living. Mm-hmm. But then there, I, I remember as I was cleaning out my mother's apartment. So my mother was still alive, but was in hospice. And like a neighbor was going on about an, another neighbor's dog. And I clearly was not caring. And she's like, how could you be so heartless? about this animal and I'm like excuse me but my mother's fucking dying right now you know you lose your shit you're like I'm not gonna be nice to you right now and then she quickly turned and hugged me and said I'm so sorry and I'm like I'm sorry for yelling at you but it's just these things of like you know I don't necessarily want people to treat me like I'm gonna break but also there's this thing of being like I am a bit fragile and I might start screaming I might start crying I because you're carrying it always it is always with you and then especially if you jump back in to do the work you you also don't know how then that's going to affect affect what you're doing Mm -hmm. either which I think is really fascinating yeah uh, of how that is shaping your work and and it's interesting what the triggers like one of the hardest movies for me to watch is Dirty Dancing Because Jerry Orbach, who plays the dad, oh wow, he's yeah. so much like my dad. Like he's he's Jewish. He's got the mouth. He's got the. He, my dad's voice was different, but um, you know, he's trying to raise these two daughters. He's trying to do the best he can. Like it, it's sort of set in a time that's reminiscent to me of like the time that I'm before I was born, but like the '60s when my dad was kind of coming of age as a man, and you know, all this kind of thing, and. It's and my dad's like very his my mom always says she married him for his eyebrows because he had like very expressive eyebrows and Jerry Orbach is like all eyebrows yeah. like that is who he is yeah. so like that is really hard for me to watch that movie and then another one is um, Alan Alda like literally sounds like my dad so I went to oh, a wow. screening in New York one night of something random that he was not in um, oh it was Lincoln. We went to like a Writers Guild screening of Lincoln. And so they had like Spielberg, Daniel Day-Lewis, like everybody way. It was a humongous 
auditorium, but like way up on the stage, they did a Q&A. But all I cared about was that Alan Alda was in the audience. Like I was to hell with Daniel Day-Lewis. I was like, <laughs> Alan Alda. And I followed him out. And again, I was like, Frank Langella. Like I was shaking. I was Because it was like, Alan Alda's kind of was my dad, but he's not mm-hmm. at all my dad. And my friend was like, go talk to him. Go talk to him. And I was like, I can't talk to him. I don't know what to say. And this poor man, he's with his wife. And I come up to him like this little like teenager. I'm like 40. But I like come up to him. Yeah. And I was like, I just wanted to say I think you're really great. Like I was like, and I didn't, I wasn't like, you sound like my dad. Like I didn't go into that. But I wanted to. You yeah. Know? I was like, oh. Yeah. Because you want to share this, this piece of yourself. Yeah. That's funny that those are your triggers. Mine... Not long after my mother died, I was making pancakes, and my mother loved pancakes. And I just was, like, crying. Yeah. One of the hard parts of grief is letting go. And you, like, I think actually the little conversation I had in the car was, I think what I said was, I have to let you go for a few Mm -hmm. hours. And you feel super guilty letting them go. Like, when you get to that moment of, like, I think I can be happy again. Like, you do hit a moment where you're, like, you laugh for the first time since you lost them. You feel good for the first time since you lost them. Like there are these little milestones that begin to happen and they're very conflicting because you feel like you shouldn't be feeling that way and you shouldn't be smiling and you feel guilty because they can't smile. They're not here anymore. Why am I smiling? And like, they can't enjoy anything. I shouldn't enjoy anything. And Oh my God, did I just do this whole activity and not think of them for an hour? Like, Oh no, you know, and that's terrible. And, and that is, I think, what changes over time mm. is that you are able to let them go without well, it, feeling like you're irresponsible. Well, it sounds like you're talking about a, a level of normalcy. Yeah. And I remember feeling <clears throat> that after dad died of, yeah. of like, like a, you know, an entire morning where I didn't think of him. Like, oh, wait. Oh, my God. Oh, what no. have I done? Yeah. You know, yeah. Like, and that it's, you know, we've talked a little bit about returning to work, you know, which like literally getting off a plane and then going into work the next morning, you know, like, wait, my mother was just really, really sick and I'm making cartoons and like, wait a minute, like something doesn't feel right, but it's my responsibility and it's what's normal. And so I, I see. Yes. Yeah. And it's like you, you, you can't feel guilty for being normal. Yeah. yeah. That'll drive you crazy. Mm -hmm. I agree. Last year, thankfully, I was so busy because I can definitely wallow. Um, but last year I was so busy. So like I said, I, I came back in after four days to finish um, Wonder City, this piece that we had been devising. As soon as that opened, I was in rehearsals for a show that I was acting in. As soon as that opened, I was in rehearsals for a show I was assistant directing. <laughs> as soon as my stuff with that was done, um, uh, we were flying to Ireland for a wedding. As soon as that was done, it was the Hollywood Fringe, and I was reviewing shows. Uh, and as soon as that was done, I had the solo festival in July. As soon as that was done, <laughs> oh my, the Amazing. semester was starting again, and I was you know busy with that. And then I was rehearsing, uh, acting for a show. And as soon as that was done, <laughs> is when I started this piece when skies are gray and then we um, flew to Ireland for Christmas we alternate back and forth so then I was able to just be away for that holiday um, and be out in the countryside Mm -hmm. uh, which was so nice it was Mm -hmm. glad that I that it wasn't here um, just to be able to go away and and actually allow yourself space to have a holiday you know Christmas day we always go for a nice long walk 
I mean, we go for walks every day. But Christmas Day in particular is a very Irish and British thing to go for walks on Christmas Day. And we went for a walk, and there was a rainbow, and I'm crying. (laughs) So beautiful. I know. (laughs) And, like, the anniversary of of, um, my mother's death, we were flying back um, and then went to Utah, where I spent my teenage years and where my mom's originally from. So then on her anniversary of her passing, we went to a cemetery there where we have some of her ashes. Mm. So it was just like last year was so busy that I really didn't get a time to think and stop until Christmas. And then that's when I was preparing myself to to make work. Um, and I was so thankful to have that, to have that normalcy, to have those things that I was working on and could hold on to and be like these are things that I'm doing and tangible because other like this Mm -hmm. year I've had far more free time um you know other than than teaching at USC the only thing that I'm really properly working on that I've worked on this year is this piece um and then getting ready for the next half of the year but Mm -hmm. yeah it's having that I think is really nice having work I think is nice it's interesting because I, I, for some reason, keep bringing up this Jewish thing, which is so weird because I'm like not religious at all and I don't ever think about it. But, you know, the Jewish tradition is they, the person dies and then it's a year later. It's called the yurt site. And that's when you do this gravestone. So you have a funeral, but then you don't do the gravestone till a year. And it's, it marks the end of a year of mourning. And it's kind of a nice structure because you literally are granted a year to mourn and no one is rushing you and like come on just you know get over it get back on the horse you really sort of have this year I don't know that everyone always uses it like I didn't really particularly think about it when my dad died um but that is what we did you know we did we he was cremated and we scattered his ashes a year later we never even we don't have a gravestone for him we never even it just never seemed like norm it just didn't seem like him like we never I've never really needed that Mm -hmm. but um but we did sort of have this year. But after he died, I was back on the road 10 days later. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, this is, this is what I do. This is who I am. This is who he helped me be. Exactly. And that's key. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. So it was, you know, very important to keep doing that. But I felt I was on the road as the girl whose dad died yeah. in my head, you know. And you are. Like, yeah. you know, I, so the show that. So after Wonder City opened and then I was rehearsing uh, this other show at Sun Assembly, I, uh, it was March. So it had been a couple months since uh, mom had passed and I was having a bad day. Like I had gotten in an argument with my professor. Thankfully, the students didn't see. Um, and I was just feeling angry. It was an angry day, um, which I tried, to, I tried to keep the angry home but sometimes the angry comes out into the real world and I tried to manage it and I didn't quite and I was angry and then I um, cycled over to the theater and I walked in and normally I'm super friendly and whatnot and I just walked in, zeroed in, went to the bathroom, tried to get ready um, and people could tell something was off and it was an all-female cast too. It was very supportive and I just, in the bathroom in my theater, just burst into tears and like they all just came around me and held me and then we're like all right let's do this very absurd comedy now (laughs) (laughs) we'll get through it together Uh, i'm pretending i'm a dog like it was just it was it was very absurd comedy um by mac wellman um and you know thank goodness that i had to it's that you know the show must go on mentality of like no we have to we have to keep going and i think that's really 
the powerful thing about about art or about having a sense of purpose because then you can throw yourself into that and you, you shouldn't feel guilty about about throwing yourself into that because as you said that's you know you are the person that your father made mm-hmm. and he raised you yeah. to be this rock star <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and how beautiful that yeah. is then that you it's full circle and that you still get to share that mm-hmm. and i think i think that's important like we can feel angry and shame uh and uh, a wreck and not knowing what is gonna bubble up at any given moment um uh but if you surround yourself with with the right people who understand, like it's okay to fall apart for a little bit, um, and it's also okay to be like, I just need to do my work today, mm-hmm. yeah. because that is something I can control right now. <laughs> you know, it's all the things I always say that grief is all the things at once. Yeah, and you could feel five emotions happening at one time in your body. And you're like, this is just my new normal now. This is just it. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> you had mentioned that um, you had uh, Hallie's mother come to your show and mm-hmm. your, and Ashley, your godparents came to your show. What were the people that have been there and knew these people and even lived it? Like, what were their reactions after they saw your shows? Well, so Hallie's mother, like I said, she was very quiet, um, but... I think she was sort of glowing. I mean, she was really like, she loved the show. She was so proud. She really, you know, Hallie was part of the show. So it was really like, there's slides of Hallie. Hallie's voice is in the show. We I have recordings of her singing a song we wrote together. And yeah, so she really like, I think for her, it was a chance to visit with Hallie again. And that's mm-hmm. why she came um, mm. four times. And my mom had a rough time. My mom saw it twice out of the four days and couldn't come again. And she said, I'm sorry, it's just I go back to the Airbnb and my mind is like spinning all night long and it's running through my head. And I, and I said, oh no, of course. It's been interesting. I've had for this Hollywood production, um, a friend of mine flew out from New York to see it, who's known me since high school and she's been with me through all of these moments. And it was, it, it was interesting because she was like, wow. You know, I, she was reliving them with me and, um, but she's a very intellectual person in the way she handles grief. So we had some interesting, and her father just died not too long ago. So it was, we didn't like cry together, but we had some very deep, deep conversations about all the issues and her remembering Maribel and remembering my dad and remembering Hallie. And I mean, she didn't know Hallie that well, but you know, it was, it's been, it's been interesting. And George has seen it like probably eight times at this point. Cause I did three previews in Burbank last summer before I went to Scotland. So he was at all three of those. He flew out to Scotland for the last two shows, and now he's seen this one like four times. He's coming again tomorrow. <laughs> um, and I think it's, it's very hard for him, cause it, especially the part about Maribel, because it's really hard for him to think about the fact that I almost never existed in his yeah. life. And he's not someone who's had much death at all, mm. and he's terrified of it, and his parents are both alive, thank God. But, yeah, he's not... Um, well, he's lost to some grandmothers, but um, his two grandmothers. But it's he, it's probably harder on him almost than mm. anyone else. But you know, he loves me, and so he likes to see the show. But <laughs> I think he's had a hard time with it. Yeah, my my husband, um, he also hasn't ex- experienced a lot of grief, and so he doesn't really need know how to handle it. Other than he's a naturally empathetic, loving, caring person. So thankfully, there's 
there's that, but he hasn't experienced heavy grief. So it is interesting kind of understanding my experience through his eyes. Mm. So he had come to a workshop um, back in February and I wanted him to come to one of, to the first workshop. I did two of them and I do, I did a, like a little first three words that pop into your head and any moments that were confusing this, that, and the other to make sure that the piece worked and that the, the nurse interaction was working. And if there were any bits that people were really confused about what was happening. Um, and the first word out of his mouth was accurate. <laughs> and I was like, yep, that's exactly what I'm going for. Like he, he thought Melissa's movement was so good that she must've seen a video of my mother. And I was like, I didn't take any video. I took that one snapshot. I didn't take any video of my mother. That's just her doing research on what happens to the body. Um, my godparents is a really interesting thing. Cause one, I'm still so shocked and touched that they drove down to see it because they've never driven down to see shows that I've been in and I do a lot of like intellectual like absurd comedy and like more heady things um and they're simple country folk um and so it's like we we operate on two very different levels um and I don't think they really know how to ask me about what I'm working on because they don't really understand, you know, what I do as a theater maker. Like, most people don't understand that. Um, so I was, and the, the last time they saw me in a play was when I did a play at this community theater in Fresno, um, which my mother had flown out to surprise me to see before moving me to college. Um, and it was just like this little Christmas pageant play at the local community theater. Like, so that's the last time that they saw me in a play. Um, (laughs) So I was so touched that they were driving down to see this and they hate driving in LA um, as they should. (laughs) And I honestly, I can't really put into words what the experience was like. I think they thought it was very profound and moving. And I think they were also touched by your presence, Mike, um, because I had told them about your, what you had just gone through after the show. And they thought that was amazing that you were there and you know then talking to they we stayed after and talked to some of my friends and I I don't know I feel like it's actually brought us closer together Um, especially now that my mom's dead um, I I feel sort of like an orphan still Um, uh, so my godparents have always been like a second set of parents with me they have definitely been there for my mother and I through thick and thin and helped raised me Um, and helped take care of my mother in the end. So I, I, I don't know. I felt like it really brought us closer together more than the actual event. Because the actual event, we were dealing with my mother there in the room. It was all about her. So I think for them to, to come down and share this profound experience and then also see how this piece that I created is affecting other people um, and all the lovely reviews that I've gotten. Thanks, you guys. Um, <laughs> and other people who have written about it, I think there's a sense of pride in them as well. Um, so it's been a really interesting experience. My, my best friend, Tracy, who lives in, in Utah, really wanted to fly out for it because we've known each other since we were 13. And she knew and loved my mother dearly. Like she flew out for the mor- memorial that we had out in Fresno. And then we stayed with them when we had the Utah Memorial. And, 
you know, um, she loved my mother dearly and she really wanted to fly out, but she's pregnant and is uh, scared to travel. She's at seven months pregnant. So her oh. husband, mm. her husband flew out to see the show and like he was crying. Um, and then he, he was like, I want to tell you all about the show, but I have to tell you in person. I can't tell you on the phone. Like I need to talk. He was going to try to figure out how to rig like a camera so he could sort of like secretly record it. And if I thought there was a way to do that without distracting, I would have. Um, But I, the space you just cannot record in there with how the space is set up. Um, So yeah, he told her like the play by play and she was crying. And um, so it's, it's, it's really interesting to have, the people who were there, um, my godparents experienced that because, as I mentioned at the beginning, that performance that night is something that I will never forget. Um, and like the other performances went fine and had visceral experience, but that when when reality and theatricality like collide like that and when you have such I do theater because I love the shared experience I love the live experience and that is why I make theater and I felt that moment that night was so powerful and communal community driven and um uh and I think people also knew that these two people were very important in my life so they knew who they were when they were there? Yeah, or? I don't think people knew, but definitely when they got up to say goodbye, like my godmother, who's had hip replacement, like knelt down onto the floor and was like, we miss you, we love you. My godfather started talking about my godnephew, whom my mother adored. She was like, you're always first in my heart, but Jackson is just, he is second place. Like he, he stole her heart. Um, and so my godfather mentioned Jackson, and so and I'm crying. They went up, they went up together, They right? went up together, yeah. which I'm so glad that oh, they wow. did. And then, so my godparents actually, my godfather won me in a bet. They were working at the same hair salon, and uh, my mother thought she was going to have a boy. Uh, and she was alone. My biological father had already run off. And he was like, you know what? I think you're going to have a girl. And they had already had two sons, uh, much older sons by this point. They were... 10 and 11 when I was born and they'd always wanted a girl and they had even thought about adopting a girl uh, and my mother's like no 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 it's gonna be a boy it's gonna be a boy again stubborn and proud and he's like tell you what when you have your girl we get visitation rights <laughs> and that was my mother's yeah. reaction <laughs> exactly she was like, okay like and it's not like they were friends they yeah. were friendly co-workers. they were co-workers at the same salon and my mother was a partier like they you know and he's very conservative christian as you know as is my that whole family and my mother is a wild child you know always on the back of a harley davidson so um so when i was born she called them up and said hey it's a girl so if if you're serious then this is life you can't just be there when she's you know cute and a baby and a kid this is the rest of your life and he's like we're all in and my godmother who didn't even know my mother like, I think about this. She took such a risk with this, like, not having ever met my mother. Um, and when I was six months old, I spent the night with them for the That's first time. That's a fascinating time. story. I know. And, and, it's... and now they're my family. Like, I get to be an auntie because of them. Because my two older brothers, my godbrothers, they're married with kids. 
So I get to be like the cool liberal aunt. That's awesome. Shakes it up. Yeah. Let's talk about gun control. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, and, and so like we really became a part of each other's lives that way. So again, for the goodbye, my godfather had said like, we certainly won the bet. And I'm like, (laughs) I know, crying. Oh, another person who came was my former boss um, who had met my mother Uh, the medium she'd even given my mother a reading and um years ago but she had also come to the wedding and so of course when when she goes to say goodbye she's like let's remember the wedding and you're going to be there when they have children and like do and of course you know any mention of children and i lose my shit and i'm like (laughs) it's 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 really amazing when you make something so personal and you have like these people in your life come share that with you um uh yeah it's 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 really hard to describe because it's such such a visceral reaction and and it's something that you can't recreate even though through performance we're constantly recreating these things and yet those specific moments you can never recreate like that that performance that you were there Mike with my godparents that was our second performance ever um and i was like so the next performance that Saturday, I was, I didn't feel as strong because I didn't get quite the same visceral response. And then I, I then I had to talk myself down and be like, no, it's because it was, it was a very special evening that we all shared together. Like, of course, I'm not going to recreate when my godparents were there or saying we certainly won the bet, you know, like, and everybody's crying, you know, so I, I don't think people knew that they were my godparents except for my friends who were there. Uh. But, but definitely after, everybody knew. I'm pretty sure after, everybody knew that they were real family. Yeah. Because we were hugging and crying the whole time. So. Well, yeah, I, I think there was, um, there was someone that you knew at the show that I attended. Mm-hmm. Because there was a connection, very obviously, that you felt with that one person. And that person was really struggling with the show. No. What? I know who you're talking about the the uh, young the woman who was crying. The woman like, who broke down. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we actually met at Fringe, and we had met at a at an event, um, and talked about each other's shows. And then so at by the time we got to Fringe opening, I think it was yeah, it was definitely Fringe opening. She's like, my show's already sold out, and I was like, congrats, that's amazing. And then I was talking about mine. She's like, I'm gonna buy a ticket to your show right now, and then couldn't come to that performance. So as soon as I added the last uh. performance, because I added a show. Um, she was able to come. So Good. I know her name <laughs> and like I've met her at a couple events. Wow. Cause I, the, the way she connected was so deep. It's so interesting too. Cause I had asked her if she wanted to be a nurse and she's a comedian and she's like, I don't like my instinct is to be funny and I don't want to ruin it. And I was like, I have a hard time imagining <laughs> you being able to be fun. Yeah. But also the reason why I have, audience members be the nurses is because the show is about the mother and daughter, but you can't sh- share a story about hospital and, or hospice without the nurses. And so, and I didn't want it to become an ensemble piece. So like sometimes nurses are super compassionate and they're there with you. And sometimes they're just, there doing their job. Yep. And that's what I love about having audience members be the nurses. Cause sometimes they come in and they connect with you, ask you how you're doing. Do you need anything else? Like they go off script because they're given permission to. And then others are like, here, done, here, done, 
bye. And it's great. I love that aspect of it. And so I was like, I have a hard time imagining you're going to, but also I thought, well, now wouldn't that be interesting if a nurse was trying to make me laugh? You know, I was trying to think about what nurse position I could put her in. Uh, and she's like, no, 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 I, I, I just know myself. And of course the comedian <laughs> is the one, like she was sobbing, sobbing throughout the entire Wow. performance and then when she went to say goodbye she lost it completely mm -hmm. and we hugged for a very long time um because she completely it ruined her yeah she says I, with a smile i on know her face. <laughs> <laughs> i love it i like to make people feel <laughs> not just think i like to do heady things too but i like to make people feel yeah um, it, it was a very moving performance and and you know and uh, mike and i have talked a little bit about our audiences and there there were a couple of people who could not participate in that last section and one person just said out loud it's like this is too real yeah that was the one who just like stormed out with the with the nurse's badge on still <laughs> oh. yeah yeah and that's it's also interesting too to see who decides to go say goodbye and it usually depends on the first person so our first performance the first person that I went to was my husband and mm -hmm. I know he's not going to participate he doesn't like participatory immersive anything though I feel like he would because he's he loves his video games <laughs> um and he's in the video game industry like I feel like he would uh, and then the person next to him was his work friend, so I knew she wouldn't. So then it gave other people then permission to, but then some performance to not go up and say yeah. goodbye. And then sometimes when I go and, like, that person goes to say goodbye, then that person goes. So then people are like, oh, do I have to say goodbye? So there's times where I get up to people and I'm like, would you like to say goodbye? And they're like, uh, uh. And I'm like, you don't have to. And they're like, no, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> because everybody else has. Psych themselves so it's really interesting, like, which nights everybody does or half the people do. Uh, I mean, there's always a good number of people who go to say goodbye. Um, I think I, I told Mike, I said that the excruciating part of that for me was where I was sitting because it took so long. I was like, oh, it's just like I, because so I had coming. to sit with what would I say if, I had the chance to do it over again. Mm. And, you know, I, I did not reach my father's deathbed. So um, he was supposed to survive. He was expected to survive longer than he did. Mm. And uh, I was flying on a Tuesday. If I remember the days correctly, I was flying on a Tuesday. Mom called me on Monday and said that he passed away. Mm. So I didn't have the final chance, even though I had a final conversation with him in, in the hospital the last time I was there. And I feel like there was some closure, but I didn't have the final opportunity. And so when, you know, I was literally sitting and there was, there's got to be like 10 to 12 people before it got to me. And mm. so it was like, I just had to sit with all of that emotion for that entire time. And it was incredibly effective mm. because it made me deal with my dad and it made me think about my mom, you know, and it just, yeah, the, it was, it, it was a lot, it, it was, I was about to say, you put a lot of pressure on me and I don't mean that as a criticism. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has like, uh, is there's uh, no hiding as, yeah, thank you. That's, that's it. There's that's no it. hiding. Yeah. And it's such an intimate space and like simple lighting. Everybody's lit. We're all there together. There's no yeah. hiding. Um, I, it's really interesting to watch people watch others say goodbye as well. 
Um, I definitely like the, the first performance. And again, I think because my husband was there and so when I'm passing out the cookies and stuff, there's more, there's a little more camaraderie, mm-hmm. um, for people who like don't know each other. It's still kind of like, Ooh. and I try to ease that with me like, Hey, we're all family right now. So don't be shy. Um, but I think even just the act of watch and that's what we did. You know, we all took turns sitting by mom and we, you know, I would watch my uncle with my with my mom hold her hand, or you know, my eighty year old grandmother with on oxygen and has had double knee replacement surgery was down on that floor with her baby girl, and mm-hmm. everybody got on that floor. And, there, and there's a reason why I don't offer like a chair or anything to people mm-hmm. to say goodbye. I mean, they don't have to kneel; they can yeah. lean over, but you know. Everybody pretty much does. Mm-hmm. Um, and just that, that act, of, that was a really stroke of genius when I was talking. So I was talking to Lauren Ludwig, who co-wrote and directed uh, Rochester 1996. Because mm-hmm. um, I was really seeking, because again, I didn't know how to approach this final day because I didn't want to go into narrative mode. Um, and that's when she helped me be like, everybody should say goodbye. And I'm like, yes, yes, done. Day seven is done. We've got it sorted. Because <laughs> it's so beautiful to watch. Um, and some people say things out loud. Some people say things quietly. And poor Melissa, who's such an empathetic performer, like she can't respond in any way, but she's, some of them are so moving, she's still crying. Mm-hmm. Um, but she can't move, you know, she can't respond. Um, and sometimes that affects her too. Um, uh, but it's really, it's, that bit for me, considering, you know, that was the last bit that I figured out, uh, is so moving to watch people have to not hide and sit with it. Or, and again, if they don't want to go, and some of them, when I would go up to them to say, would you like to say goodbye? They're like, I've already said goodbye. And then, That's great. You do not have to mm-hmm. get up. There was one woman who came who, like you, Russell, did not get to say goodbye. I think it was her father who passed. Um, did not get to say goodbye to him. So she was more like, fuck you. I'm not saying goodbye here. I didn't get to say goodbye to my own father. And I was like, that's a f- perfectly fine Ooh. response. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you can say goodbye if you want and channel it through my mother, or you can sit there and you can do whatever you want, but there's no right answer mm-hmm. or wrong answer. There's mm-hmm. no wrong answer. Which is really what it is in grief too. Yeah. There's no right answer. There's, there's no, no wrong, wrong answer. answer. Like, yeah. Sometimes it's just awkwardness. Yeah, (laughs) you have to just take care of yourself. Like, again, that's why there's people you won't want to talk to, and that's okay. If they can't get on your wavelength, then, you know, okay, take a break from them for a while. Like, I actually, when my dad died, I wound up sort of chumming up with people that I had not been that close to before, but they had experienced a loss as well, and, Mm -hmm. and I haven't really been close with them since. But for those few months, like, they were key, very key for me. And then, you know, we kind of, and I for them, and then we kind of went our yeah, separate ways Yeah, I agree, again. me too. It's really amazing. It's yeah. like, when we, like, flock. And Who's like, the person? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it was interesting. Uh, so going kind of based on that last question, what would the subjects of your show say if they were still around? Oh, you with mm. the hard question. Mm. You want to take that one? First? I think my mother would just cry. Like my mother was like that. Um, she did see me perform in a play in 2015. Um, I was in this show called Love and Information at Sun Assembly, uh, written by Carol Churchill, and it was her first time seeing me perform in a play since the Christmas pageant that she had surprised me with 
um, before moving me to college. So it had been <laughs> a good time because she was never, we never had enough money for her to fly down to see me in anything during college. And then I was gone for four years in London. Um, and we definitely couldn't afford to fly her over there. Um, so I'm glad she got to see me in a play for one last time. Again, she wasn't sharp anymore and she did fall asleep a little bit in the front row, but she was so proud. And I remember like hearing her before the show started from backstage chatting with people in line. Um, and, and then just the people that she met afterward, how proud. So already like just this picture on the back of my program from my wedding of that, that look of pride. I just think that she would be crying and that she would be so moved that, um, that her life, that her love, that our love, um, is channeling this piece. I, yeah, I just, I don't think she would have the words for it. I clearly don't have the words for it. Um, I just, a sense of pride and, and crying. <laughs> which we're very good at. I think for mine, so I'll go backwards. So um, my dog, Hattie, is featured in the show as well. And she would be um, howling along every time I sang because that's what she does. She <laughs> even tries to match my pitch. It's really oh kind of amazing. Um, and then um, I think Maribel would just be tickled by the whole thing. I mean, this is really like being part of something like this perform she was not a performer at all but I think you know she would be proud that she got me here mm. which she kind of did in a way in a horrible way but in a way and in a good way and you know so um Hallie actually was an actor she went to this high school of music and art and um again this would be right up her alley like she'd be right there on stage with me and the song that we wrote together is featured in the show and um, and then my dad, it's so interesting because I, I think exactly what you're saying, like the pride would be there just like when he saw me play. That was at the bitter end in New York, that scene that I described. But it's so another crazy thing that's happened as we've been working on this when Lynn and I came back together to kind of refresh it for this run because it had been a year. Um, we did tweak a couple moments and I can't remember which moment it was, but we rejiggered something. I think we actually just rejiggered the way I was performing something. Cause in Edinburgh, I was treating the little girl as more of a little girl. Like she was kind of bratty and I, I didn't, I didn't like go high with the voice, but I, I gave her sort of a, this is me and I know everything about Duran Duran, you know? And it was like, fine, it worked. But what I realized after another year of other storytelling performances was that I just became much more comfortable in my skin as a storyteller. And I also realized that, you know, kids don't think they sound like kids. They think they sound like grownups. So I just turned her into a grownup. Like I, 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 I'm her talking like this, like she's just talking like this. Cause this is what Kids think they sound like, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was one of those moments. I can't quite remember, but we were reading through the script, and Lynn always gets goosebumps when the dead people come. And so she was like, oh, I've got to the goosebumps. And she's like, oh, your dad just said to me that this was just marvelous. And I was like, okay, whatever. Stop with the dead people talking to you. They're my dead people. You can't have them. <laughs> and then I, and we finished our rehearsal, and I was walking the dog later that night, and I suddenly thought, Wait a second. Did she say marvelous? Because that was like a word that my dad used. Like that was he would and he had a bit of a Midwestern accent, and he would say, "God, 
was just marvelous. Wasn't that marvelous? Alice, that was marvelous. And it was like the highest form of flattery from him. And I called Lynn and I, and she said, what's wrong? Like, I can't, like she picks up the phone, what's wrong? And I was like, no, no. I said, did you say that my dad said marvelous or did you say magnificent or what, what word did you say? She's like, oh no, it was marvelous. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. And that was actually one of the weirdest moments for me. Like the sage burning, all these other things, whatever. Oh. She can have her little life of being friends with my dead people. But like, that was like so specific. And I was like, Wow. And then I felt so good, too, because I was like, he is maybe around for this. Like, it, that's what a word that is that he would use. Like, I mean, who uses the word marvelous? Like, yeah. it's kind of dated, but it's, like in a wonderful way. I had a moment with Melissa on our second workshop back in February. And we always give each other like a little hug and um, before the show, before we let audience members in. And she goes, I think your mother would be very proud. And of course I lost my shit. So I'm like, okay, I, I cannot be sobbing at the top of the show. <laughs> um, but it is, it is that, I, yeah, that sense of pride, again, because they made us, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they encouraged us to pursue our passions. Mm-hmm. Um, which not everybody gets. So it's so amazing that both of us share that, that, you know, yeah. our our parents that we've lost have have really shaped in, in our artistic endeavors. Um, yeah, and, and that sense of pride and, um, yeah, I think just delightedness as yeah. well. Yeah, Marvelous. Absolute marvelous. I love marvelous. Yeah. Marvelous. <laughs> and what's next for each of these pieces and what's next for you personally? Well, for me, <laughs> I have one more performance, which is this Saturday, Friday, 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 Friday the 13th. Dun, dun, dun. <gasps> Perfect <laughs> for my hauntlife.com. Uh, yeah, Friday the 13th at 8 p.m. at the Complex Theater Hollywood. It's my final show. So hope people will come. It's Life, Death, and Duran Duran. If you look it up, you should find it. Look me up. Um, we are still selling tickets. We actually, oh, we're running a discount for Friends of Sam, which everyone listening to this now is. So when you get your ticket, you go to your little checkout and for your coupon code, all one word, Friend of Sam, and you put that in. Um, And then, you know, I don't know exactly what's... I'm actually playing a music gig on the 28th, just like a full-on old-school music set. Maybe I'll tell a story in the middle, I don't know. Um, And then I'm going on a road trip in August with my friend that has nothing to do with any of this. Um, but I'm trying to figure out what's next. I want, I'm hoping to hook up with a producer who can tell me what to do with this because it's had some great response and I love doing it. And, you know, I'd like to maybe develop it into a full length piece, maybe even an ensemble piece where the band is in it as well. Um, Duran Duran, right? No, well, of course. <laughs> that's not actually what I was thinking. Obviously. Of. Yeah. I would love for Duran Duran to see this play. I think they, don't you think they would like it? Yeah. I think oh, I they think would they like would appreciate it. Because they represent hope and love oh, and joy. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, they are inspirational in the play. So, um, so maybe that someday, I don't know. I, I got an email from the Maui Fringe Festival asking me to submit. Hey. Which I guess I will do because Maui. So yeah. I'm going to look into that. You don't say no to Maui. And yeah, I'm just hoping to keep doing it. And so I actually, there's a book deal on the table. Ironically, after my long memoir project, um, a publisher came from the UK when I did it in Edinburgh. And she's very interested in turning it into a book but I owe her a couple sample chapters which when you've had something in one form for so long and it's so condensed and tight it's hard to figure out how to expand it again and so um and then the fringe took over for the Hollywood fringe so I'm going to be working on that 
And yeah, I don't know. Uh, so see. for the gig that you mentioned later in the month, uh, yeah. where can people find information about that? Oh, all of this is at samshaber.com. Great. S-A-M-S-H-A-B-E-R. No extra letters, no C's, nothing else. Just that's it. <laughs> Dot com. <laughs> I love it. Well, for me, I'm hoping to do more performances. We're trying to figure out when we can make that happen um, because myself and my stage manager are doing two separate shows in the fall. So I'm hoping early next year to do it, um, especially before the semester really kicks off for both Melissa and myself. It's interesting because when I first did the show, I didn't know if I was going to be able to handle doing seven performances, let alone adding an eighth. Um, and now I want to do more, um, which seems bizarre that I want to keep re- recreating that experience <laughs> for me. But it's the sharing and it's the response that I get that makes me want to do more. So, yeah. So here's hoping that that can happen. Um, what's next for me is I produce a solo festival at Sun Assembly Ensemble, uh, Sun Assembly Theater. Um, it's the Solo Creation Festival, and this is our fifth year doing it. Um, in fact, the first year is when I first met Melissa. Um, and that's how we started working together. Um, and then after that, I will be involved somehow in our fall production at Sun Assembly, which is called The Woman Who Went to Space as a Man, um, written and directed by Maureen Husky. And it's about this real-life science fiction writer, Alice B. Sheldon, who wrote under the name James Tiptree. And she wrote these really interesting pieces and... Um, was a closeted lesbian and had committed suicide. There's no spoilers. The show starts with the suicide. Um, but just this really fascinating real-life woman. Um, and there's music in it as well. Um, and so some singing. Uh, so that's going to be our fall production. Um, but yeah, I'm really hoping that we can do another, another run of When Skies Are Gray because I feel like more people should not hide from their grief and experience this. And for the other work that you're talking about, the, the festival work, et cetera, where can people find information on that? Yeah, go to sonofsemily.org. It's S-O-N-O-F-S-E-M-E-L-E.org. Um, that's my other theatrical home and my theatrical family. And through them, I produce and act and direct. Um, and we do some really cool shit. That's what I say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Russell, I think it's time for the question. It's, it's time for the question. Um, we have a traditional question on the podcast when we talk to people because Mike and I share a lot and there's, there is stuff that we definitely don't agree on. So we asked this question of everyone. If you feel, uh, yeah, because of the heat, I, I, I put it in the refrigerator. Um, <laughs> I if, can't wait for this. if you want to deal with your grief in certain ways, if you want to eat your feelings, would you choose Kit Kat or Snickers? <gasps> Snickers. I don't even need to think about it. Okay. Um, probably Snickers as well. I, I'm kind of yes. anti-American chocolate now, uh, so I would actually choose Cadbury Whole Nut, oh, which I have so in a drawer. Elegant. <laughs> <laughs> no, you actually, get it from- Yorkie bars are my favorite because they were John Taylor's favorite when I was in love with John Taylor. It's and frightening the first that you actually ever- know that. Oh, I do. <laughs> and the first time I ever went over to England, as I think I was 13. I went, made a beeline for a Yorkie yeah. bar. Because this is before, like, now the, all the candy's everywhere. Yeah. yeah. It's not special anymore. No. But that first Yorkie bar, man, that was exciting. I don't know if I've ever had a Yorkie bar. They're good. Yeah, Actually, yeah. I prefer the raisin and biscuit. I believe John goes for plain. But <laughs> okay. it's okay. I've had to find myself, you know. 
branch out. Oh, yeah, I mean, well, bit. you're an individual, even though if you you can pay tribute, but yes, you are an individual. I am. I am. So, I am. And, and John, if you're listening, please let us know. Which yes. Is, for sure. <laughs> Do you still like Yorgi bars? <laughs> My so, obsession story went way deep into all of them. Oh I knew what vodka gosh. they drank. I knew everything. Wow. I knew all their wow. girlfriends in chronological order. I mean, I had it down. It was... I don't know if I've ever been, like, a fan of anything that to that degree. Yeah, I was I, I am crazy. really impressed with you right now. I just... <laughs> I, find I don't know whether to be impressed or like a little sad no, <laughs> right. it's very or funny scared. The <laughs> end of my little obsession story is that I said at the end, you know, I'd like to say a few words in defense of obsession because in order for a teenager to be truly obsessed, they have to be focused. They have to have good time management skills. They have to follow through on things. They have, like all these things that you sort of get served by later in life. Like, it shows, you know, they have to be, and most of all, they have to be passionate. Attention to detail. Attention to detail, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. That was one of them. And, you know, and they have to be passionate. And, and if you don't have passion, it can be very hard to find your way in life. I mean, I have friends that are still trying to figure out what they want to do when they're 45. Yeah. So I knew from that moment in 1982 when I saw that video, like, boom, that was the rest of my life. So. And is that still to, to the, what is your favorite Duran Duran video? Oh, video. Yeah. It probably is Rio. I don't know. I haven't what? thought about that in a very long time. That's a great question. Huh? I have no idea. I could I could probably say my favorite Duran Duran song more than I could say. Which is? Although I walked right into that and I can't answer that either. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite album is Rio. That okay. I can say. I will say that. Yeah. Right. You actually, in the show, you actually perform a piece of a tiny my piece of re- Yeah. Oh, which is? Reflex. Yes. Yeah. So what I do in the show is I work some Duran Duran songs into my own songs. So they pop in and out when you're not expecting yeah. them. And uh, we hear the reflex in a way that probably was never intended. <laughs> it's a very emotional moment when the reflex yes. suddenly <laughs> appears and you're like, this really? Okay, uh-huh. <laughs> let's do it this way. And oh. I just feel like I need to share a quick story. Please so do. my friends and I, like we will go to 80s clubs or new wave clubs, or whatever. And I have a friend named Phil and Philip. And whenever they play girls on film, we always say that girls on Phil. <laughs> and that's my, my story. That's, that's his answer. That's my, yeah. Am I allowed to plug my 80s bedroom radio? Of course. Oh my God. Please Everyone do. Everyone has to find it. I don't know who this is, what it is, but it's a 24-hour deep cut 80s streaming music website. And all I do is play 80s music, but like deep cut. Like New Order and on down, you know. And New Order's not deep cut, but like down from there. <laughs> And it's called my 80s, what did I say it was bedroom. called? My, my 80s, 80s bedroom. bedroom. I think it's my 80s bedroom radio.com. I don't know. Google Everyone it. Everyone go Google find it because yeah. if it goes away, I'll yeah. be very sad. We'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, good. Yeah. We'll find it. We'll find <laughs> and, it. and you get to look at pictures of people in the 80s in their bedrooms. So it's pretty awesome. Interesting. Like not dirty pictures. Like just I love posters. the internet sometimes. Oh, I know. <laughs> I love so, it. So, and uh, Ashley, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Go for it. I was going to say, uh, influences like uh, who did you obsess over when you were younger that's a I didn't I I mean I did a lot of share impressions <laughs> and nice. if, if, if you didn't obsess over anyone some people who you consider an influence would be the other one that's hard to say because I'm one of those that I I love everything but I think I mean this is really cheesy it's my mom but she, one of the things that I loved that she taught me was like how to build things. And so I was that kid who was always building stuff outside and oh, like building a tree house and just making things myself, mm. especially as an only child. And I think that more than anything has really shaped 
me because I love to make things. And although I started out initially in my career as just an actor, that desire to make, to constantly be doing things has actually led me into directing and producing. I love producing, um, you know, spreadsheets and scheduling and budgets. Yes. Um, And I love devising and just getting in a room of people and being like, let's see what we can make today. So I think just that, that influence of just make it yourself and do it. Yeah. Because nobody else is going to do it for you. That's probably shaped me more than any, any kind of pop culture thing. I might just have to like clip that little piece out and just play it for myself. (laughs) (laughs) You both mentioned some websites and stuff earlier, but um, where, where can people find more information if you didn't mention it? And do you have any shout outs that you want to give? Oh, well, I mean, the Fringe website, which is still happening for me, so that's HFF, as in Harold Frank Frank, or I guess Hollywood, Hollywood Fringe, Fringe Festival. Festival. <laughs> I don't know why I went into military code there. Uh, yeah, HFF18 for 2018, dot org. HFF18.org, and then I am slash 5065. That's for Sam Shaber, so Life, sexy. Death, and Duran Duran. Isn't it? They make it so not easy to remember. Know, what was mine? Um, <laughs> but no, I have really, for me, everything stems from samshaber.com. All my music stuff is on there, my videos. There's storytelling videos, music videos. You can listen to all the music, not just from the show, but I have all my 12 albums are on there. Photos, Instagram, all my Instagram, everything of that is at Sam Shaber. Yeah, I really, that reminds me, I need to work on my website some more. So my website's ashleystee.com, and I have a lot of blog posts about grief and uh, written about trauma and things like that that are on there. I'm hoping to start writing about happy things again, Um, but right now it's kind of chronicled my grief, um, which I think is also really interesting and was able to use for research. Um, And I'm Twitter at Ashley Steed and Instagram ADeets, which is Steed backwards. Ooh, tricky. (laughs) yeah, I got to work on my website, man. I got to get happy stuff on there as well. well I do. For me, because I've been, a mu- you know, in the music world, mm-hmm. like the website is so key. And it's very funny because I will often go to theater websites that have not been updated. A musician lives and dies by their website. And it's really, it is your presentation of yourself. Theater, mm-hmm. I guess, because it's an ensemble, it's a little harder sometimes. Well, yeah, maybe, and to like your people identity. know you through your work. And right. so it's been so long since I've had to update it. Right. And I have all the five people who visit it. Right, So right. it's not really, like I'm, I'm working, I'm doing things. So <laughs> yeah. clearly that's the last on my list of things to update. But I, want, I do want to update it with, with all the lovely reviews and stuff that I've gotten for this show. Can we eat the candy now? Yeah. You all, I'm oh, like you staring yeah. at this yeah. bowl. This is a Snickers bar. Eat your feelings. Yeah. <laughs> doing, wait, what's this? It's not fair to oh, she found something else. Snickers with peanut, oh, peanut butter. butter. I like regular. I'm going to do that. I like oh. peanut butter. I'll eat this American. This is how we end the show with the yeah. sound of it. Um, yeah, so as we're digging in, talk, Mike. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Sam and Ashley, thank you so much for sharing such personal stories, not only through your shows, but the stories that weren't in your shows that made it on the podcast. Um, and you, neither of you can talk cause you have mouths full of chocolate. Sorry, I'm eating chocolate. <laughs> Team Snickers. Um, yes. and so thank you very, very much for coming on and thank you for creating, keep creating. And we are fans for life and we'll see anything you do from now on. Woo-hoo. We'll just lower your expectations for my next piece. <laughs>
If you don't devastate me next time, yeah. I'm going to be totally devastated. I think I want to do something fun, though. Like, Melissa and I talked about doing a clown show next because we need to do something fun and playful. Seriously, thank you both for sharing everything that you have. And I, I think Mike and I both reacted strongly to your pieces because we are both dealing with heavy emotional stuff in our own lives. And the fact that you both created very, very different pieces of work, but that both hit us... You know, I, and again, I, I I don't want to speak entirely for Mike, but I I think we share the the affection for your pieces and what you've created because we did recognize parts of ourselves and we did recognize situations that were painfully familiar, sometimes really painfully familiar, and the fact that we can look at them, or at least from my perspective, something that is as cathartic as your show was and as inspirational as your show was and i can flip that to each of you that that there was something inspirational in yours and something cathartic in yours sam you know it's just thank you for sharing that because like this is a journey and the value is from sharing experiences Mm -hmm. and the fact that you did what you did I just, I personally truly appreciate you doing it. Well, thank you so much. Like, and thank you both for, for coming to our show. I know. I was going to say, I think you're exactly what you're saying is the reason why we created these Absol- shows. So absolutely. it's perfect. exactly <laughs> yeah. what we wanted to do. Exactly. Not like, well, it was all right. Yeah. There could have been more Duran Duran. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bait and switch. That was an hour of watching somebody die. Yeah. That's <laughs> kind of how I feel right now. You know? <laughs> Those are the reactions we could have been getting. <laughs> oh, and you did get those reactions, but they were positive. Yes, they were. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Again, we would like to thank Ashley and Sam for stopping by and talking and uh, and really doing it on <laughs> one of the hottest nights. No, it is the hottest night. It is the hottest night. It broke night. records today. Yeah, I... it, it, it's ridiculously warm and we usually turn off air conditioner and everything and you might hear a little hum in the background of this podcast is because we actually have fans going, um, which we normally don't do. But we want to thank these guys for, for sitting around uh, in a in a rather warm apartment, uh, sharing their lives with us and fascinating stories and and helping us reflect on certain things that are going on in our lives. I I'm lost, Mike. Please jump in. <laughs> yeah, I it's weird. I feel like there are guides in a way, you know, and and like they like they're where we strive to be because right now, like you know, with everything going on with us, like you know, I mean, I started crying in, in the middle of the podcast because I was thinking about my mom, but like, you know, and like, I think that they're a good representation of where we will be, you know, we will be okay. Like we will be able to, to like smile and laugh and joke and everything like a way we used to. And we will be able to share stories and, and everything like that in the future. Yeah. And, and I think it's a little different for you because it's so recent you know, I'm reflecting on my dad a lot because, you know, of, I recently had to travel because my mom was sick. So I'm in a slightly different position, but listening to these guys and them working through their processes to get to a creative place 
they're both inspirational, man. Well, that's, and that's the thing. Like I want to create something for my mom right now, Mm -hmm. you know, after talking to them, like just because like, you know, it, it basically is a celebration of their loved ones, you know? And, and it's like, I want, I want the world to know how awesome my mom was. And that's what they, they've been doing with, with that, with their family. Yeah. We thank them both. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much. How'd we do on that? (laughs) I see the red. Yeah. (laughs) You're in the red. And I did record that because I knew it was going to be good. Uh, That's actually a great scream for this podcast, don't you think? That could be your new theme song. Haunting scream or Janelle Monae fan. (laughs) Torture porn or Janelle Monae fan. (laughs)